This episode is brought to you by Gothic Garden Fixtures. For the amateur horticulturist who wants their new petunia bed to have an ineffable aesthetic of fear, a threat of supernatural events, and the unwelcome intrusion of the past upon the present, is there any real choice besides Gothic Garden Fixtures? They are the guaranteed provider of outdoor adornments to ensure your blossoming scabiosas will seem haunted by a sinister antiquity, such as a statue of an angel that is blankly judging you for stealing your best friend's boyfriend when you were 14. Or give your barbecue patio a shadowy claustrophobic sentiment with a faux stone yard divider with, if you look carefully, a crack making its way from the top down its side until it's lost in the dark waters of the plastic reflecting pool. And nothing is sure to make your daughter's 10th birthday party a success, whatever the theme, is when it's tinged with the potential of vengeful persecution, imprisonment, and murder. And when you order, use the promo code RERED, one word, to receive a free small device to project slide photographs of distant castle ruins onto your privacy fence. And thank you, Gothic Garden Fixtures, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. This episode is brought to you by the support of generous listeners just like you. You can learn how to be one of them at patreon.com slash rereadingwolf. And thank you, listener patrons, for supporting the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning. The following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book. Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Hi, Craig! Hey, sir. Well, this episode took a little longer to get out there. Yeah, um, but it'll it'll be all right. So yeah, we're just kind of. I think I know what it really is. There's a Freudian thing I'm sure going on that we're both stalling <laughs> because the longer we take, the longer we don't have to like head on dive into the play. Oh, the play. Yeah, I, I have loathed the play. I am so. I look. Um, I'm giving my all for the play. It means a lot, but I will be so glad when the play is in our rearview mirror. <laughs> <laughs> so. We'll be able to get back on a kind of regular track. I think. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, the yeah. most, as far as like a commentary thing goes, that is definitely, it's more, it's so far and above imposing compared to the Brown Book stories. Because those are just weird. But, right, yeah. you know, any connection to the larger story is speculative, you know, right. and in some cases kind of obvious. With the play, though, it's like begging you. It's like taunting you, daring you, saying, figure me out. Yeah. Like, oh, <laughs> dang it. So, yeah. 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 I, I don't know. I don't know. I, it's not just the play either. It's these next few chapters are just thick. Oh, they're just so weighty. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You wouldn't tell it by page, by page count, but they are. So, well, all right. So, we're not going to get it done, but if we don't just get it done. So, I don't know what to say. Um, yeah. I, I just really want to get step. back to, you know, speculating whether Casdo and Agilis are twins or something. So, and I'm just want to be able to say like, we're halfway through new sun. That's, oh. that's my thing. Like just to be like, <laughs> we finished two books, not just one. Then I'll yeah, actually yeah. feel like, okay, we actually have made a start. So yeah, we've got to get some chops. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's get to it. How about, uh, how about some corrections? Hey, you was wrong. 
for the host's prerogative, I will start with mine. Uh, something uh, something I left out in our conversation. Uh, I had a l'esprit de l'escalier. Uh, yay. I don't know. I, I can't pronounce it. It's, it you know, it's uh, the French for the spirit of the staircase. When you think of the perfect thing to say as you're walking away and the moment has passed. So Severian, he sees the sun rise behind the fountain and he thinks mm-hmm. of the statue of Nyx and the personification of night and the mother of Princess Noctua in the tale of student and his son. Well, Severian thinks of that statue sitting atop the con on the little the little way station uh, and hostel for travelers mm-hmm. that's on the road between Guile and the gate of the necropolis. And in chapter one, Shadow, he saw the sun setting behind that statue. And in this image, it's the sun rising behind the fountain. And it makes him think of that image. And I let that image pass in our last episode, you know? Mm, that, that's a nice catch. Yeah. yeah, night with the mm-hmm. sun beyond it. Yeah, that's a nice bit of symbolism, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Well, then again, there's Austin Beeman. <laughs> he says, <laughs> I disagree that the new sun shouldn't be listened to on audio. For me, the audiobooks were the only way I was able to understand the book. While you work through the new sun with a fine-tooth cone, and I enjoy and respect that, in my opinion, this is a book meant to be read with blurred eyes. <laughs> in 1979, Wolf could not expect the reader to research every word on the internet or look up the saints on Wikipedia. I believe we were meant to have it wash over us. And what understanding we derive is from the context of the story. I suspect Wolf wanted the strangeness of the distant past to be experienced with that sense of faded ambiguity. And the audio experience is ideal for that. Well, I definitely see that. I mean, sci-fi in the 70s was, I mean, even new wave stuff was still relatively new and there just wasn't a big tradition of, you know, any sort of academics doing the thing of like, let's reread and write about it and write about it and reread. So, yeah, I mean, no, I think even if he really did think you could put it all together, that was, that was a bonus, right? That's not what he expected the reading experience, I don't think to be. Yeah. Um, And, and I'm with you. I actually like, like, I really do like listening. And that's one thing, I don't know if it's as I get older, but I actually, instead of having the audio experience feel more like it washes over me, I don't know if something's just changed, but I actually feel like I do pay more attention when I listen to certain aspects of like wording and phrasing. Um, just because I think the main thing is it forces me to slow down. Like, Mm. I mean, I know my reading speed is definitely faster than my talking speed. And so it feels like it's slower. I mean, normally like if there's a book I want to really listen to I do the thing where I speed it up to at least like 4.5 <laughs> or something um but if it's like when I've re-listened to, to Wolf I'm always at just like keep it nice and slow yeah Very half speed slow. yeah <laughs> so, oh, yeah, yeah it's not like a little drunk singing reading it but uh <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I find it very hard to, to keep a constant focus uh, when they're, when, you know, like for an audio book, it's, I always have to go back, go back, go back. What did, okay, I missed that part. I phased, I was doing something else and looking at something else and I didn't yeah. hear that part. No, it's, it's probably not a safe thing, but driving is actually some of the best like reading concentration I have, which is <laughs> probably, but at least it's like it put, puts one part of me on complete autopilot in a sense, in that it's like, it's a bit of a routine thing just to drive and, your body's engaged, but you, but it also forces me to be alert. But then everything I'm thinking about 
is the book. So right. yeah, I like it a lot. I actually, yeah. there are times when, I mean, honestly, even for this, there are times when I've gone and taken a drive just to listen to the chapter. Wow. Sometimes just for the detail. Yeah. Well, let's see. Also regarding uh, last chapter where Severian does some book reading, uh, Stuart Ham. I give about a half a teacup of beef. He liked your interpretation that maybe Severian's stigmata was not like a crown of thorns, but maybe a bruise in the shape of a cross. He says, I love that we were graced with a phrase never before said in the English language. Shout out for Ash Wednesday. (laughs) (laughs) Well, good. That's kind of cool. Yeah, I think it's just something that hadn't really hit me before, but I like that. Yeah. You you know how you could really show me your appreciations too? You could send me a bass. <laughs> well, he's got so many. He does have a few extras, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see. On Facebook, Adrian DeForest says that, quote, the most suggestive thing about Severian's forehead bleeding is that it is not one of the wounds of Jesus. It is specifically a wound Severian is going to inflict on the autark two books from now. Yeah. Mm, good point. Yeah. And yep. he half proposes the first Severian theory to it. He says, it's almost makes me think first Severian was eaten by the autark rather than the reverse. And the event is echoing through the timeline like the monster and the good doctor. Mm. Well, I like that yeah. too, because then it's almost like its own its own version of stigmata, right? It still yeah. can have that that larger significance of stigmata. It's just that the details of it get translated into the story. Yeah. Obviously, I consider that an ironclad process of the exegesis for this book. I approve, <laughs> true or not. <laughs> so let's see. Uh, regarding the Autarch's Pavanine book, Christopher Taylor has some ideas. He says, if you want to force a way that Severian could see his own corpse in Zadkiel's book, maybe the leather binding is made from the skin of the first Severian. Smart oh, ass. Yeah. <laughs> Still, though, I, yeah. I, yeah, I think he's being a little facetious there. <laughs> Man sized book. I mean, I, yeah. yeah, I don't know. Should be, yeah. Like a face, it's like a face from uh, The Evil Dead, a little book with mm-hmm. a little face on the front. Let's say he, but he says, on a ser- more serious note, hmm, I could see Appian getting the false hope that maybe he could send Severian off to Yesod before he became Autark, so maybe Appian himself wouldn't have to die at all. This really makes sense that Appian would not be in on all the details of the conspiracy. After all, Appian himself has already been branded a failure. And Hmm. uh, he says, I quickly looked up the symbolic association of peacocks, and apparently medieval Christian symbolism associates them with eternal life and resurrection. Yeah, we should have mentioned that. Uh, However, other sources often portray them more negatively. One thing about peacocks that I'm not aware any indication Wolf knew, but which would have slotted in perfectly if he had. There are two species, blue peacocks and the green. Huh. Wow. That's oh, really dang. good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, oh perfect. That's, good, but that, that's complicated. Yeah. Maybe he knew, maybe, maybe he didn't. Um, yeah. I wonder though, we didn't get any, any ideas about why Agia is wearing a Pavanian brocade gown and yeah and first meets him the fact that he uses that word in both places is significant but yeah exactly why yeah i don't i don't have a theory but then i don't have much of a theory for agia anyway so uh let's see christopher goes on one possible factor is that blue and green represent a pair of colors which seem intuitively contrasted 
but for which, unlike other such pairs, say red and green or black and white, most readers wouldn't be immediately predisposed to consider one as good and one as bad. Mm -hmm. Considering the common theme of Wolf's work, certainly front and center in the solar cycle, of the difficulty and futility of judging at a cosmic level what is good and evil, I can see the appeal such a pairing might have had. Yeah, and yeah. I'm that's where I'm coming to something like that. That's the more we think about this, the like when I first started obsessing over it, I thought of it much more as a kind of he's got some personal code, you know, that he has. <laughs> but the more I think about it, and the more I see him use it, just in all kinds of ways. Yeah, I think I think something like that is is right. Yeah, yeah. But it's yeah. it's a nice, ambiguous, but also, yeah. I like that he says that intuitively contrasting. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's kind of become his brand, though, right? In in so many of his books, he's. Yeah. I'll do it. How can I work that in this time? It is also beautiful that it is the colors of Earth, right? You look yeah. at Earth and it's blue and green. Um, exactly. But that, and that works so well with the planets, right? For for the later mm -hmm. on, but but it's been there in all kinds of ways, from fifth right. head to yeah everything else. Uh, let's see. Uh, Christopher also says the revelation that Wolf didn't make maps while writing confirms what I suspected already, particularly in regard to Shadow of the Torture, where the geography of Nessus doesn't make a huge deal of sense logistically. The wall as high as a mountain range, but not visible from the Citadel a couple days walk away. Well, he, I mean, it's a little visible. It's just it's a little line. But um, but Michael Andre Druisi uh, concurs. Indeed, he says, add the league-high cliff, and there seems to be a pattern of vertical height exaggeration, since it is not likely that the cliff is three miles tall. Then there's the orbit of Loon, famously said to be 50,000 leagues, 150,000 miles, when the orbit behaves as though it's really still 240,000 miles, and this being a sort of vertical height, but an exaggeration in the other direction. A remarkable consistency, whether a bug or a feature. The culture that is incorporated uh, Copernican theory regarding the sun's motion, but remains floridly Arabian Nights regarding vertical height. And he has a side tangent. Uh, Michael does not think Loon has the visual diameter enabling it to eclipse the old sun. It would transit like Venus and Mercury, but not block it. And as a result, the Earth people do not really have the concept, which makes the miracle of Apu more of a miracle to them than to us. In a similar fashion, Horn, on his first trip to green, sees two big lights in the night sky, and after some head-scratching, we note that whatever those lights actually are, people from the long sun have no concept of a moon. Well, that's true for them anyway, because they've never seen it, right? But, uh, you know, if the Commonwealth does not, you know, experience uh, eclipses, then that eclipse symbol on the cabinet would be, you know, as we said, just a name for a symbol with mm -hmm. no common understanding of the concept behind it, which makes, I mean, what's a spade? <laughs> what's a, what's yeah. a club, right? Yeah. Also, Michael and Stephen Frug. And I can do the Frug agreed regarding Christopher's perspective on the autarch's motives. And Michael says, and that's what I think it was, the offer of a shortcut. The old autarch probably had hoped that his shortcut would mean he didn't have to die after all. And as you noted, the surprise edition of The Claw was a real wild card. And let's see, Stephen Frug, he says, 
James and Craig don't really talk about it, but the autarch seems to realize at one point that he's going to die soon. Quote, I sensed at once that he had been caught off guard, possibly for the first time in many years. There was pain in his eyes, and his left hand moved, though only slightly, toward the vial at his throat. The motion towards the vial is a giveaway. That's why he's caught off guard, I think. He knows at that moment that it's later than he thinks. What I don't understand at all is why Severian's saying that the autark could show him the way to the garden would prompt that thought, but it seems clear enough and emphasized enough that Wolf must have meant something by it. Okay, so yeah, uh, Craig, I wonder if Wolf himself dropped the ball by, you know, not emphasizing the Yassad Green Room Association in Earth of the New Sun. Uh, there's a lot of implied references, but ideally Wolf would have thumped that. I wonder if there are references to the trial room, you know, being green or something. Hmm. Well, yeah. Well, we'll have time (laughs) unless someone alerts us anyway. And let's see, regarding the symbolism uh, that Severian saw in the fountain. On Reddit, Adolf Hutler says, I might be over-interpreting here, but I saw a different and more concrete symbolism in the rod and chair images in the fountain. I took the rod to refer to the object the Kumeyan swallows during the ritual at the Stone Town. And I took the chair to refer to the old chair that, if I recall correctly, Dorcas identifies from her past life. And he also uh, connects the fountain itself as a symbol of the White Fountain, the New Sun, and that certainly seems valid. Okay, also on Reddit, Scallop Oolong. He also liked our conversation about how the Vatic Fountain feels like technology from a Jack Vance story. It's a bit of a digression for us, but uh, you know, you should check it out at the Hydromancy episode post in the Rereading Wolf podcast subreddit. Actually, and that worked with the title Hydromancy. That's for the the Mancy thing is precisely the kind of Vance. Yeah, it's a it's a very Vancean thing. Yeah. Let's see. Uh Adrian DeForest also has his own definitions for the term hypogeum apotropaic. It is a tomb of magic, turning away misfortune, a lucky chamber, a plate or a lucky room, right? A place where coincidences are artificially much more likely, uh, probably something to do with Aniri's mirror technology. That last hmm. definition specifically is why he thinks that Severian ran into the false Thea again. He says, hmm. in a repetition of a singular childhood event, it is also why he can't find his sword, but only after contriving a convoluted but complete and unbroken chain of reasoning to justify it being 10 feet from where he happened to be. Hmm. I like that. That's yeah, it's cool. a, it's something, that's kind of like something from uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Once you stop trying, that's, it's also very kind of zen. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Once, yeah. you will succeed once you stop trying to succeed. <laughs> but, but it does sort of let, yeah, let chance and fortune and all those things take over. So, and synchronicity. Also, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, and he also sees this as the reason why Severian stumbles into the center of the labyrinth and blurts out just the thing that will make the Minotaur think, oh, it's already time to feed my kid my brain, and I guess. <laughs> well, you know, that's an interesting uh, connection of the Autark to the Minotaur. It's appropriate, yeah, I think. Yeah, that's very, actually, yeah, that is very appropriate. I, now all of a sudden things are clicking because I'm like, oh, <laughs> if the labyrinth is... House Absolute, which we've been getting all the talk about, the second house being, you know, convoluted and strange. And then mm-hmm. what does he do? Yeah, he gets in there. 
Um, and then it's not really a fight, right? What you thought was going to be a confrontation isn't so much a fight, but uh, a sort of mutual recognition. Of sort and of, he um, calls the Autarka hermaphrodite. And a minotaur is also two separate two beings. Huh. Yeah. There's the analogy. People will be going crazy now. <laughs> there's they're overlapping quite well. Yeah, I'll have to think about that more. If that if that is more what's going on, it's ah that works. That works too. Yeah, it works a lot. Uh, and he thinks the very end and the claw quote probably amplify this effect since they constantly warp probability anyway, giving him a downhill route through just about every obstacle. And as for how he can see his own face uh, in the book. Maybe it's a similar process to how he can appear as Thecla when her personality is dominant, a, a strong hint that the book is bound in the skin of some version of Severian. Yeah, there you go. It's it's hard not to fall into the uh, everyone is Severian theory, but uh, yeah, it's very tempting. Uh, it, he says there is surely no shortage of Severians in, on, in the Commonwealth, <laughs> and he recognizes that on site. Yeah. It, yeah, it seems like most people have come down on your side, Craig, regarding Rudison, that the, his appearance, you know, sitting on the bar stool, and then, no, it's a stepladder. You know, that's just weird perspective <laughs> to the hallway of Father and Neri's wing. Could be, but like I said, once you once you think about how Zadkiel works, then the yeah, there's yeah. there's so much else that's working with that. But. Yeah, and Adrian DeForest, uh, he went his own way. He says the description of Rudison changing size and perspective is very like the sphere that Mister Square meets in Flatland, which would be fitting for a higher dimensional being. I feel like Rudison is in Neary in the same way a circle is a sphere. Hey, that's kind of in line with what I said too. I like, I like that. Mm -hmm. uh, an emanation into a more limited dimension, a slice. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. So there, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe there are people who are on my side. I, I shouldn't try and draw these lines so tight. So. <laughs> And uh, Mike Benowitz, he also liked your connection between Rudison's painter Fetchin and the Russian-born portrait painter Nikolai Fetchin. He says, I think Craig might have nailed Fetchin. James was looking for a thematic resonance with the narrative, but Wolf is also a formalist. Looking at Nikolai Fetchin's paintings helps to see this. They are very grounded portraits, but they are blurry and abstracted outside of key focus points. I see a resonance with Wolf's formalism in how both work with focus and ambiguity. Yeah. Mm, I like that. Yeah. I like the yeah. focus ambiguity way to talk about it. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's, it is very tempting to, I mean, Fetchin, there is a famous portrait painter named Fetchin. How can you, how can you leave that on the table? <laughs> and then of course, Stephen Frug dropped a giant, truckload of glittering frugness on us about the closets and pictures <laughs> chapters. The strange fruit of a frug post. <laughs> he says, thoughts on the, as of this writing, second and third up to the most recent episodes. One, in closets, there's a line about Thecla's memory that James and Craig read aloud, but didn't comment on, or at least didn't comment on this aspect of it. He says, a man in rich and elaborate clothing, drew aside, and several lovely women stared at me curiously. I felt Thecla's memories stirring at the sight of their faces. The notion that Thecla's memories, he says, needs to be stirred up. They aren't there always, as it were, but only when prompted. That fits with the other things that we've seen, her memories of the antechamber. We'll see 
recognizing the autarch and also fits with the theory of Severian's memory that James and Craig are developing, that he never forgets anything forever, but sometimes fails to access the records. I wonder if it is something Wolf thought about memory in general, or if it's just that that's how Severian's memory work and that carries over to Thecla in Severian. It also seems to say something about the nature of Thecla's survival. She is there in Severian, but only sometimes, like an alternate personality that can be called up, but is often dormant. Yeah, well, she's she's constantly monitoring, but, you know, because Severian has to keep her tamped down, I think it seems like she, yeah, she needs kind of strong prompting to finally say, hey, look, Severian, you've got something yeah, it, going on here. It does seem that way, yeah, even though I, I know I've, put forward really strong thing before that I feel like she is literally alive and thinking in him in some form or another, but he's, he's right. Like it, it is true that, that she's just not always there. Like when she's there, she can be really powerful and influential and sort of control his, or at least take over his attention um, where he could be as if he was thoroughly Thecla, but yeah, it's not like she's always there. And it's not like all of the, her memories are right there at his immediate Mm-hmm. you know, perfect command. And, and neither, are, neither his own. So yeah, but no, he's go. that he's right. That quote was right there. Yep. Right. And also he says, I loved the point that James and Craig made about the way the second house works as being a parallel to both the autark. He seems like a mere pimp, but he, there's also a hidden side that is he's the autark and to Severian's book as a whole. And along those lines, I'd point out that the nature of the room Severian meets the autark in is a metaphor for Wolf's book. It looks like the next in a long series of images, in this case, fantasy novels. But when looked at carefully, it is something weird and literalized and new and science fiction. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, thanks. That's cool. Yeah, thanks for um, I've got one more thing. I, I had a con- really interesting conversation with um, Mantis on Reddit, and we were talking about his idea of the corpse. Uh, he doesn't believe that there's a corpse in the uh, in the mausoleum, in Severian's mausoleum. And I found, well, wait, but it's right there. <laughs> he, says, he talks <laughs> about it, talks about the body. Um, and he, the way he sees it, of course, is that you know, when at some point, via maybe Severian's uh, closeness or whatever, the uh, the f- first Severian, one of the first Severian, the guy who built the mausoleum, has been resurrected, and the door, you know, being off its hinge, is kind of like the stone being rolled away. And I thought, well, that's, so I, he says, well, tell me some more about your reading of the body in the mausoleum, and so. What he did bring up something that I don't think I ever really picked. I I, I know I didn't pick up on uh, the the funeral bronze is not inside the mausoleum, which I or that is to say the symbols of that that's on the uh, mausoleum are not inside. They're on the outside above the door, and the bronze is something else. And he polishes it up, and he can you know see his face, and it is reflecting, but. Uh, Michael sees that the casket has an effigy on top. You know, you're like you've probably seen it, like a little s- statue figure of the person who's buried on the inside. And he says he thinks that is the funeral bronze, and he's looking at that. And I had reasons to to doubt whether that's the case, particularly since Severian said that the body is laid out before him, and that's really only something you used to talk about for a real body, not necessarily an effigy. But once again, it's 
very interesting, the, the different takes that people who read this text very, very carefully have. Oh yeah. So. No, I saw it when you guys were talking about that. Cause I, I think I've always assumed it was yeah an effigy on there. Like I, really? I imagine it much like, um, like a medieval King. If you go to, if you get, get to go to England and go to, you know, Westminster, you get to see all the old Kings with their all laid out, like the stone carvings of them laid out on top of their, their yeah. caskets. That's how I had pictured it. But I do remember when we were reading it the first time when we were recording, like you were pointing out these things and I was like, oh yeah, maybe that, maybe it is a corpse in there, but I wasn't really sure. <laughs> this was I the time like for was, you to shine. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, but I felt like it was sort of like ambiguous a little bit. And I was like, I'm not, I'm not sure. So, um, and I'd have to go back and look at it now, but that's still, I think my default picture is right. it also works because Severian becomes the autark. It would make sense that there would be what I associate with like a King's burial thing. On yeah, there. But yeah. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. That's that, that's a lot of associations of what I assume rather than what's actually written. <sighs> you keep the cooks and charlatans and business babe. But do you appreciate your Okay, so it has been a bit longer between episodes, but still we had lots of new patrons since last time. Um, I think the attraction of the Slack channel for Master Patrons is seducing a few more people, which is great. Uh, we also had a few more people sign on for a full year at Patreon all at once, uh, which means that what we'll do is give you a full back year of the stickers that we have, at least until we run out. Uh, and speaking of, we've got an amazing first year of Patreon anniversary sticker coming up by Finn Matthews. And there are pictures of all of these on all the social media sites. But we are grateful for all the new people who signed up in the last couple of weeks and, of course, for everyone who's been with us for a long time. The money helps us pay for hosting and even get new subscriptions like upgrading Zencaster so we can record not just two or three, but maybe up to five people at once for some special upcoming treats. We do try to put that money back into the show and not just feed James lust for all the original appearances of Wolf Stories and back issues and things like that. So first, thank you to our new Journeyman patrons. Remember, for $2 a month, you get access to all the extra media content on Patreon, bonus episodes, and write-ups. So welcome to new Journeyman Lucas Rizzoli and Steven. Just Steven. Then we have a bunch of new master patrons. That level gets you the stickers throughout the year, along with a link to the Slack channel for even more wolf and non-wolfy discussion stuff. And of course, the most important thing is that masters get a musical tag for comments. So here we go. Thank you to our new masters, Neptunus Eggleson, Giles Clark, Giles is what you call the friend. Rebecca Spazery, with my friends Nathan Skinner, Timothy Thomas, and Jesse P. Just like Jesse James. We adore everyone who listens to us pontificate and ramble, and we extra adore those of you willing to help us out, especially in these difficult, trying days as we tackle the play behind the scenes and figure out ways to talk about what Wolf's doing there without sounding like unrepentant adults. But patreon.com slash rereadingwolf, if you're interested in helping us out with an ace or an aura chalk, we would appreciate it. I don't know what to say, Craig. Let's just uh, make our way into the garden and have some symbolic conversations about personification. You know, 
I think Dorcas, Dorcas is kind of being a Severian's therapist at this point. And it does have a big kind of analysis, analysand, or wait, yeah. what's the term? Analyzer, analysand. I can't remember the actual things. But yeah, there's we're, we're definitely going to get a little therapy. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Chapter 22, Personifications. This is a chapter with a lot of occulted explanations and expositions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even when, even the chapter title, personifications. To personify means to symbolize or to essentialize in your person. I think this is going to be addressed at the end of the chapter when we decide whether Severian really personifies death. But I think it's about more, too. And I'm not sure what that is. But we'll see. Yeah. And as a... As a- Literary figure personification is treating an inanimate thing like a person or, well, not just inanimate. I mean, it can be treating a non-human thing like a person. It's like anthropomorphized then. Exactly. Right? And usually used with allegory, which is how we're going to see it, um, but can also just be used in phrases, similes, kind of a metaphors can be personifications just yeah. in what they are. So, but yeah, but we definitely are going to get death and innocence again, uh, which Talus is used before, mm-hmm. but it's also a good thing because we're two chapters away from the play where there are lots of personifications too oh, going on. Yeah, so yeah. thinking about how he talks about those here may be a good way to compare contrast what's goes on what's going on in the play. And we have uh Jolinta coming up in the next chapter, who is maybe uh being depersonified, right? Could Maybe. be. Yeah, I like yeah. actually I like that that's a good connection because that yeah. comes in between the the two personification ish yeah. chapters. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. All right, so now it's daybreak. And it's the the afternoon of the day before yesterday, Severian and Jonas were captured in the outskirts of House Absolute. And since then, Jonas was injured first by the Praetorians and then by the whips of the young exultants. Uh maybe the green man made a cameo, something weird began to happen to Jonas after his injuries, of which there is no agreement about whether the injuries themselves were the cause. Uh, There's no point in debating that further right now. Uh, Severian was able to use the claw on Jonas and then read to him as he laid there, seemingly deteriorating, but maybe in fact getting better. Severian woke up several times from his dreams. Hathor sent a critter against him. One time he awoke, believing himself to be Thecla in that moment uh she happened to convey the way to leave the antechamber via a, a secret door jonas left through one of Eniri's mirrors then severian went looking for a sword encountered odillo and then Buzek on the run uh, both of these people will never encounter for the rest of this uh story as far as i know and that's the consensus i think then the prophetic fountain now severian is running to reunite with dorcas and that's Quite an eventful 18 hours or so. Should be 17 hours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, no, he's not in the league with that. Only if I guess that's shows up. Yeah. <laughs> so Severian, remember, has been given instructions by the Autark, and he finally realizes that it was the Autark to get to the famous green room where the entertainers are residing. And uh, I guess uh, Aniri kind of helped him along most of the way. He's been told to look for the gated trees. He's found it. He's traversed it. And now he's running along a lawn, a, quote, broad expanse of grass spangled with tents, 
tents everywhere here and there, somewhat separated. The first line through the wide dripping arch of the gator trees, is that just dripping because of the fountain? Is the spray going everywhere? I I think it's because it's drooping because it's it's made of uh, leaves or or of trees, branches. I didn't know if it said dripping as in literally like water raining down from like the spray of the fountain. Yeah, yeah. I think I... well, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, I don't know. I mean, my the, my my reading of it is, it's made by gardeners, <laughs> and mm-hmm. so it's you know it's not. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's dripping leaves. I don't know. I mm-hmm. I didn't. I don't remember anything having to do with water though. Unless unless oh, it's in the morning. Maybe it's dew covered. So maybe it, it is be. dripping. Yeah, could be. I have no idea if that's an important detail or not. <laughs> <laughs> well, the point is he's found the gated trees and he's yes. traversed it. And now he's running along a lawn, a quote, broad expanse of grass spangled with tents, tents everywhere, here and there, somewhat separated. A spangle is an easy word for Americans to suss out because the national anthem is the star spangled banner. Mm-hmm. So if you just think of the stars in the American flag, those stars are spangling the blue field of the flag. Severian can hear a megathear roaring. Again, a megatherian and a megathear in this case are not the same things. It's common to call Erebus and Abaya and Scylla megatherians because Master Olton referred to a book called The 17 Megatherians, and there's a council of 17 in Askia. But to be fair, that's only a guess. I, a good guess, I think. This is the first mention of a megathear so far, but I feel... Like maybe we've talked about it. A, a megathere is a giant South American ground sloth, about mm-hmm. 20 feet, six meters long, and 8,000 pounds. They were herbivores and had sort of prehensile lips. They were probably a, like a cross between an animal mouth and an elephant's trunk, sort of an elongated mouth and nose. And they went extinct around 8,500 B.C., and human hunting is the presumed cause. And yes, megatherian and megathere have the same root words, meaning giant wild animal. And since I've recently argued that it was a megatherian, a specific megatherian that was shaking his chain in the man-ape's cave, I think it would be derelict for me not to note that Severian records, quote, somewhere a megathere roared and shook its chain. And the fact that he calls that out, I like. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And even though I like that, I was going to say, otherwise, the one thing about this section, it might seem even to argue against using megatherian as the word that we commonly use it. But actually, I like the way you're going with it better. Yeah. Nope. Actually, here he's throwing the word out there and mentioning both the roar and the chain. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe we're supposed to. Maybe this is a maybe this is a hint. Right? I'm in a conspiratorial mood, so I like that. <laughs> I'm feeling paranoid myself. So, but, you know, that's the only sound. And even the megatherium is silent and settled back into the death-like sleep of its kind. Cue mm-hmm. the ominous music. There was a, a giant, there was the, uh, the skeleton of a giant sloth at the Fort Worth Museum of Science and History. Oh, uh, Science yeah. and, or the, shoot. Science and natural history. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went there so many times as a kid. Now I've forgotten the actual name. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, and it was the one that always fascinated me because when I first saw it, it didn't look anything like a dinosaur. And so I kept trying to figure out because then I was like, I don't, you know, it was little. I was like, I don't know what a sloth is. But <laughs> that's what I learned about sloths was this, this giant thing that was like 12 feet tall and 
I mean, just looked the size of like a giant bear was what the skeleton looked the, like. The big hook claws and yeah. stuff? Yeah, uh-huh. and so every time then I would hear about sloths, I still remember always imagining that sloths were these giant things. <laughs> and then once I realized how small sloths actually were, it was sort of a little disappointing. But yeah, <laughs> Let us down. How, kind of cool how misunderstanding something when you're a kid can lead to all kinds of great imaginations. <laughs> so yes, yeah, see, uh, nothing to be heard around, but the dew dripping off the leaves. So, you know, there you go, dripping leaves. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the, quote, faint interrupted twitter of birds uh, except for one other sound wick 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 an irregular uh severian follows the sound and he seems to know what it is it's dr talus of course lopping off the heads of wildflowers with his sword cane <laughs> but talus sees him first He's, he calls him my friend my partner everyone's asleep but you and i over here and he calls him your Dorcas. He says, your Dorcas. Is yes, yes, So yes. he still it, thinks of them as a pair, right? Yeah. Which is, that's how he first saw them, as death and the maiden or death and right. innocence. Or at and least how he first saw her anyway. Right. right. Yeah. But I do like that that friend and partner um, because, you know, the friend is certainly fine. Partner, I mean, literally, yeah, because they're supposed to share the money, right? Mm-hmm. He still hasn't split the money up, um, which is probably what he's referring to. But I do just like the notion that by sort of that repetition and intensification, it kind of suggests that he and Talos are possibly in something together in a way that Severian doesn't know. Yeah. Oh, and, you know, the fact that he refers to her as your Dorcas, I think that implies that Talos does have the ability, you know, uh, I've often questioned whether he's really sentient or just Mm -hmm. simulating sentience, uh, he at least does have the ability to understand what is going on in other people's minds. Oh, yeah. And and to, you know, which is a, you know, that's a a complex uh, ability, uh, recognizes personality, but whether it's necessary, whether, you know, a personality is required for that, um, I don't know. Yeah, I think you and I definitely read Talos different ways. Like uh, my my gut is always that he's not only can he do all that stuff, he's also like incredibly smarter than everyone else. Like, but I think you you've still seen him more as he might be something he might like be. an automaton. I know. Oh yeah, and he I, might be he might know. be smarter than everybody, right? Well, I had always assumed that until we started talking, and then I was like, oh okay, wait a minute, what's what's the evidence, or am I just going yeah. off a gut feeling? No, I, I remember but, um, that there's a. a uh, from um, Pilgrim's Regress uh, by C.S. Lewis, he has this line where he looks out and he sees, I forget, like these um, dryads or, or, or some types of, 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 you know, mythological beings mm-hmm. from an elf in a distance. And he refers to them as wise as gods, but not self-aware like beasts. Mm. And so maybe that's kind of the direction I'm going with Talos. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's cool. I just, it's funny how the assumptions we bring to things and then yeah. wonder, where did I get that? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, but, but yeah, but Talos does definitely have the ability to see what's, what other people are thinking of and how they see themselves in the world and how they see him. So, I mean, that's, however he's accomplishing it, he's pulling it off. Mm-hmm. All right. So, like I said, it's dawn and they are to perform that evening. Just as with the last time Severian performed in the play, he's arrived 
just in time. Presumably, though, if he'd been taken by the Praetorians a day or two later, the Autarch would have sent someone to claim him. Yeah. But, uh, you know, Talos said that if he hadn't arrived, he'd have hired one of the other actors in the tents here to take his part. He says, I owe you some money, remember? Not much. And between you and I, I think it's false. It's the, it, right, it's the the famous chrysalis that he's not going to actually get to him, give him <laughs> until the end of this, this whole book. But he says, but it is owed just the same, and I always pay. And, and like I read, remember that the fake chrysalis, it's as far as Severian can tell, it's identical to the one that he got from Vodalus. And the consensus has been, for as long as I remember, that like the thorn that became the claw of the conciliator, this chrysalis is also the same. That future Severian had gone back, watched the initial play, left the chrysalis. Again, I think it's you know obvious Talos is taking instructions from someone. When he met Severian in Baldender's beds, I don't think he was surprised to find Severian there. And that, and then he began putting together, you know, a play ad hoc at the breakfast table. And whether that's Malrubius, the first Severian, or the disappearing first Severian being overwritten in time, or a future our Severian, I think Talos has been instructed to return this coin for reasons that I have not yet guessed at. <laughs> Uh, Severian doesn't recall any fake money that he's owed, but he says if Dorcas doesn't have a problem with it, he'll forget the debt in exchange for some food and a place to sleep for a couple of hours. He lets Dorcas do all of the financial workings between them. They've already somehow worked that out between them too. Yeah. And we can't let it slip by that Severian just told him he didn't remember something. I don't recall any fake money being mentioned to Severian either. And maybe I'm wrong. Do you? I mean, no. I, I, don't, I don't think that there's any mention, certainly not mention of a fake Chrysos. They got, they, they were dividing the money and they got down to, you know, a few Orichoks and Ias and... And then he says the stuff that's probably false. Yeah, and the stuff then, that's probably false. But he doesn't say, you know, but it's Dorcas who's, who agrees to take that stuff. Yep, take not the, Severian. So, right. so that means that Severian said he doesn't remember something, but it's because it apparently didn't work that way for him to remember yeah yeah for some some reason uh talos is bringing up this fake coin now as though it's you know this is something else that this is some new plan that uh, talos has come up with um so yeah i mean i don't know <laughs> i don't know what to say I, that, well, that whole is, thing about the about the missing coin i don't get it well it is uh something that comes back and like i said i kind of took that to mean that Talos was coming up and saying, hey, this whole thing was planned from the beginning and it's sort of like a, you know, finger on the side of your nose kind of. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's the, that's the thing. Yeah, he, it's just like the, yeah, like I said, just like, the, like the, the claw. Severian realizes that, you know, this whole thing is coming back to him from mm -hmm. some way. But I do like, if that is the way Wolf was planning it out or thinking about it, I like that this is here as something that, was not about splitting up the money, but was about something else. Like right. I owe you some money. And I like that that's, that's really cool. Yeah, that's he really just cool. drops it in. So very, I don't remember that. And no way, mm -hmm. unless you go back and say, well, it's right back here in this text right here. Yeah, but otherwise it might make you think, oh, this is a time when Severian has bad memory. But actually, yeah. if, if we're playing strictly by what's in the text, nope. He, yeah. he wouldn't remember it because it didn't happen. So yeah, I'm going to check the Earth list on this just to be sure. But yeah. I don't 
think so. And if I discover an explanation to this, this whole conversation will disappear. So, (laughs) (laughs) as we do. So, anyway, uh, remember that Talos can't make facial expressions. Apparently, he can show his teeth, but in order to express regret, you know, he just nods briefly. Severian writes, the doctor's sharp nose dipped for an instant to express regret. And he has regret because they have no food. He says, Baldander's eats like a fire, but there's... <laughs> I like that too. That sort of like just consuming, just vast yeah, yeah, consuming. Yeah. But there's an official position, the Thiasis Marshal, and that guy has promised to bring food to the performers. He kind of gestures with his cane and says that they won't be bringing food until mid-morning at the earliest. So Varian says, yeah, he's too tired to eat anyway. Talos notices the bruise on Severian's forehead, uh, it being Ash Wednesday, as you say. But he says, you know, they'll mask it with some grease paint when they perform. So one little point about him saying we'll cover up that mark with grease paint, which is that this is the mark of some like truly deep somehow experience that Severian's had. And Talos is like, ah, no worries. We'll, 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 <laughs> we'll cover hide that. that. We'll, we'll not hide his light under a bushel. Yeah. Basically <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll put a mask over it is essentially oh, yeah. what he's saying. That's you a very know? good I mean, point. Yeah. Um, and so after that happens, I think we always have to kind of find some resonance to, even when Severian doesn't know what the sort of spiritual or religious or anything like that significance of those kinds of markings are, I think we're supposed to pay attention to that. So here yeah. he'd be kind of saying, oh, while you're working with us, we'll we'll have to hide that sincerity <laughs> and hide that because that's not what we're doing. That's not, that's not what we're about here. Yeah, yeah. So Talos leads the way through a maze of tent ropes to a heliotrope dome. So look at this. We've got a maze, which implies a labyrinth, a heliotrope dome. That's a tough one. A heliotrope is an old word for a sunflower that tracks the sun throughout the day. It's a genus of flower, and it's a name for a type of gemstone, the bloodstone. Hmm. And uh, Lexicon Earthus settles on it being a color, like the gem. But hmm. a heliotrope dome, when I look up this word on the internet, I find only one citation that comes up it, besides this book. The Claw of the Conciliator. And it's an old story from Astonishing Stories, December 1940, Quicksands of the Youth Wardens. And it's not definitive, but it appears to me that it refers to a dome with an opening that follows the sun throughout the day. That's cool. Uh, Let me just read from here. They found him lying in an easy chair on the roof of the presidential palace, his eyes covered with goggles, having heavy, clear lenses. He was looking up at the sun through an opening in the heliotrope dome and was evidently dictating something to a black-robed little priest who sat by him, taking copious notes. Huh. Uh, either way, you know, or another, it, you know, it doesn't matter, but it's that's what I think. And I think it fits better in this story. I like the heliotrope dome. I also wonder if it's, could it be the opposite? Like, is it heliotrope because like the covering, the dome follows the sun so that you're always in shade? I don't know. Well, in my opinion, as long as it moves. Moves with the sun. With the sun, then it Mm -hmm. still fits. Yeah. Yeah. I like that though. That's pretty cool. 
So then Severian sees Baldander's barrow is at the door of the dome, and Dorcas and Jolenta and Baldander's are all sleeping there. He doesn't mention standing over her sleeping body. He just goes to bed. They all essentially wake up together. Now, when he says barrow, what is what is Like a wheelbarrow. A wheelbarrow. Oh, 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 oh. It may not okay. have a wheel. Maybe he just drags it. But gotcha, it's, gotcha, gotcha. yeah, it's a word for a barrow. Okay. Honestly, I was sitting there thinking Tolkien. I'm like, well, he wouldn't be buried under a mound. Yeah, I, you know, I don't think that the etymology is the same, but I always think of the barrow of a, uh, a, a wheelbarrow is like the shape because it's just like uh, the barrow meaning a mound, which is like, it, it, like, like you say in Lord of the Rings when they're buried under these mounds. Um, but I don't think, it, apparently their etymology is not, uh, the same at all. Hmm. When I woke, it was as though we had never been separated. Dorcas's delicate loveliness was unchanged. Jalenta's radiance threw it into shadow as always, yet made me wish when the three of us were together that she would leave so that I might rest my eyes on Dorcas. Ah, we're told later that when Dorcas and Zverian met, for whatever reason, they didn't talk. They only, quote, smiled and touched with incredulous hands. And then Dorcas goes to get water. And when Dorcas comes back, she's going to take Severian to the place where she got the water. Yeah. Just this one moment here about Dorcas and Jalenta and how he feels about him. That there's something about Jalenta that even though he's in love with Dorcas and wants to spend time with her, he's constantly still distracted by Jalenta. Yeah. Point. Well, you know, Jalenta has all of the obvious things that yeah. would appeal, right? And even possibly the like we talked about that when it all fades off later on, there are suggestions that there are kind of like hypnotic things that are associated right. with it. I don't know, pheromones mm -hmm. or just future tech or something <laughs> that, you know, is going on. But um, it's definitely here, I think, presented as if it's something, something involuntary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is doing, yeah. And just one other thing I have to mention, he says, um, the Jalenta's radiance threw it into shadow. Mm -hmm. And just that word shadow, which I like is cool because here the true thing, the true beauty is in the shadow of something that is sort of fakely shining, which is right. different from how we think about it. But just going back to how the shadow symbolism works, especially in the first book. It's interesting that even though she is Talus's creation, he's kind of contemptuous of her. For that, maybe perhaps for that reason, mm -hmm. right? Uh, we'll get to that in a bit, but um, yeah, she's the light. She throws it in the shadow. When I first read this, I, I thought, oh yeah, yeah, she's casting a shadow <laughs> onto Dorcas, but no, uh, that's not how it's working. She's her light makes Dorcas look like she's in shadow, right? Because she's yeah. she's she's the big shiny yep. uh, penny. So about an hour after everyone wakes up, Severian buttonholes Baldanders and asks him why he left him in the forest after the chaos at Piteous Gate. <laughs> I don't know. It's some, I, 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 we need to talk about why this scene is here because I think that's uh, maybe maybe it's just to signal to us something. Um, it's just a strange conversation. It's a mm -hmm. strange thing for him to ask. I don't know why Severian thinks Baldanders of all people would have tried to stick with. Severian or anything or try to protect him. Um, 
My point is that, you know, I come to every scene in this book as though it's potentially packed with foreshadowing, world building, irony, misdirection, and hidden exposition. And there's really not much to mine here. This only has surprises for the first reader. So Varian is walking into this scene with the assumption that Bald Anders is just a gruff, mentally challenged servant, right? What a first-time reader will understand by the end of Sword of Lictor is that, you know, he's a ruthless scientist who has not been more merciful to himself in his goal than he was with anyone who fell into his hands. And at this point in the story, he has difficulty in maintaining memory and keeping the significance of his memories in cogent order. And that's why he needs a, quote, doctor, the mm -hmm. one that he created to care for his needs during this time, I suppose. Maybe he's been stuck in the state for five years since his house was destroyed. But I feel like maybe the purpose of this scene is just to remind the reader of the series of events that led to Severian being in their group and how they got separated. Anyway, let's, maybe yeah. we should check this out. Yeah, and it, it just in general is interesting because at this point, Severian just thinks of Bald Anders as a servant. And right. It is, as, it's just, why would he be calling the shots anyway? Yeah, just an why, odd. Why would he expect initiative out of Bald yeah. Anders? Yeah. Yeah, so Severian says, why did you abandon me in the forest? Bald Anders, I was not with you. I was with my Dr. Talos. Which is to say, we are not allies, Severian. I only care about keeping track of my most valuable piece of property, yeah. my <laughs> Dr. Talos. Yep. yep. Yeah, and Severian says, well, I was with Dr. Talos too. We might have sought him together and helped each other. And Bald Anders tries to comprehend uh, Severian's point. Were you with us when we left the city? <laughs> of course. Dorcas and Jalinta and I were with you. We found you there then. I, I'm guessing, but I think he means we found you before we left the city. And yeah. Severian says, yes, don't you remember? And Baldander shakes his head. To Severian, this means, no, I don't really remember. Maybe it means more, I'm not sure. Yeah. And then he says... I woke one morning, and there you were. I was thinking, you left me soon. Baldanners is thinking back on when Severian was in his bed, thinks maybe he's missing something, and then maybe he's thinking, wait, I didn't leave you, you left me, which is true, and Severian and remembers this. It could true. also well be that this is a, a sign of how Baldanners really asked, because the way this is phrased is, I was thinking, and then he's like, you left me. Like, he, maybe he really was, like, what he's doing is always caught up in his plans and thinking about other things, and so he literally was like, is like, I'm, I'm not paying attention to the details of what's going on around me, really. I leave that up to Talus. He's always more thinking about his plans and doing other things just because the way that I was thinking is phrased is that one yeah. little simple sentence right in the middle there. Um, it, of course, first time you're going to look at that and it sounds like, like he's dumb. He's like, I was thinking that takes a lot of effort and it mm -hmm. might be like, yeah, it, it does because what he means is something totally different. But uh, Bald Anders, even in that first encounter, he's kind of moving more slowly. Oh yeah. Than, mm -hmm. than Severian. Severian, you know, all the questions that are asked and, and all the, his, his answers are always well delayed. And I wonder if since he's been thrown out of his house, he's had to stop whatever treatments he was using in order to, you know, capture all of the native people yeah. of the lake. And now, you know, this has left him in this state until he can get his house rebuilt. 
which is when Severian will need him next. Yeah. So Severian says, well, you know, yeah, I, I left you then, but circumstances were different then. We had arranged to meet again. <laughs> we have met again. Yeah, and Severian had no intention of meeting him again when yeah. he left. Yeah. yeah. And here we are together. Uh, what's your problem, dude? And then he elaborates. He's like, there's nothing here real to me but Dr. Talus. Uh, that is to say, Severian, we are not friends. There is no us. The only thing here that matters is Dr. Talos. And that's a fairly honest, straightforward point for a guy who seems to often have difficulty keeping track of what is going on around him. Yeah. And also remember that what he's doing is he's working on turning into basically a megatherian or to prolong mm -hmm. his own life or something. So he means that both kind of literally and metaphorically. It's like, I just don't really care about what's going on here. This is not important. What's important is me or my laboratory or, right. you know, maybe what's going on in my head or my plans or whatever, but all this stuff, this, this dealing with life stuff. That's why I made Dr. Talos. <laughs> yeah, to do all that. Yeah. And you know, Baldander says Dr. Talos lies less than people think, but Talos is constantly dissembling and lying in my opinion. And when he's not, he's deliberately not conveying important facts, facts that perhaps Jolinta ought to have been privy to before he started transforming her, I think. Again, I think he's lying about why he brought Severian in the group and why he is trying to return that fake coin. But Baldanders, I find it difficult to ascertain anything he has lied about, either to Severian or anyone else. Not in Earth of the New Sun when he makes his reappearance. It's, it's Baldanders who doesn't lie. Talos is inauthentic right down to his nature. And he's not lying here. He's really saying, like, I really don't care what happens to you. It's like Severian's like, why didn't you save me? Yeah. He's like, I don't care about you. Like, he's just being very honest. <laughs> it's like, <he's> not, <laughs> it's, it's, it's honest when you know the whole context. But yeah. Yeah. Oh, by the way, Severian is noted gray in Baldander's dark hair. Uh, like with Haythor, I, I see parallels between Baldander's and Severian. Others have certainly noticed that before. But we must remember that Baldander's original physique was that he was a notably short man. So there is potentially a physical parallel between Baldanders and Hathor, and I don't know mm -hmm. what to do with all that, mm, potentially. Yeah. I don't know why I have an intuitive thing that Hathor could be Severian. <laughs> Baldanders like, nope, no way. Just <laughs> it means it probably is. <laughs> so Severian says, your loyalty to Dr. Talos is very commendable, but you might have remembered that he wanted me with him as well as yourself. A Severian at this point refers to Baldanders as a dim, gentle giant, which is a total misapprehension of Baldanders. Yep. Also found it impossible to be angry at him. But that's yeah, going to be yeah. the climax fight of the, the next book. Right. He will work it out. And then we will collect money here in the South, and then we will build again as we have built before when they have forgotten. So this is, again, Baldanders revealing his entire plan. Gather mm -hmm. money in the South. He's going to live a long time. So will Talos. When the lake people have forgotten why they were driven away, they'll go back to the house on Lake Diaturna and rebuild. But perhaps he doesn't know that Talos has already cut a deal for them to get all the money they need by tonight. Mm -hmm. But Severian is even more clueless about this. To him, they are in the North, and that's the only party seizes on. This is the North. But th that's right. Your house was destroyed, wasn't it? Burned. And then we get one of the Wolfian dialogue breaks where it's confusing about who's talking, but I think it's Baldanders. Uh, but it throws you because it's so un uncharacteristic of Baldanders. Yeah. 
compared to everything else he said so far. He's like, I am sorry if you came to harm. For so long, I have thought only of the castle and my work. And yeah, See, even when you do know about Baldander's to apologize. Like yeah. That is, <laughs> yeah. 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 And Baldander's actually has the social awareness to recognize that Severian feels wrong and he apologizes. At some point, Baldander's has sat down and Severian walks away, quote, to inspect the properties of our theater, not that they seem to need it or that I could have detected any, but the most obvious lacks. So he can't just sit around and do nothing. So he pretends to make himself useful. The male performers are all clustering around Jolenta. Talos seems to believe this is something that she's directly encouraging. Probably right. Uh, Talos shoes them off and orders her into the tent and follows her. And then Severian hears the smack of his cane on flesh. Severian says Talos came out of the tent grinning, but still angry. And since I think Talos is not capable of uh, facial emoting, I think we're left to imagine how he conveyed that with body gestures. This is also a place where we don't see what happens. So, you know, obviously we're supposed to think that he went and spanked her with his right, cane. Right, yeah, or he beat her but, with the cane. But it is also possible that he was doing something to her. Or, I mean, we know that yeah. he has to be do something to keep her uh, as she is, you know. And so it, this is just one of those places where he intentionally has them go out of sight. And then yeah. Severian interprets what we hear. And yeah. So I, yeah, I just don't know because well, we, the, but the the relationship may could well be very, uh, you know, domineering and and sort oh, of. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So, but I I do think we're supposed to think that this is not just Talos being cruel because um, right. that's how Severian I think sees it because of course what he says next. Yeah, but I think the implication is that that either he's it's part of his work with her or it's some kind of you know, S and M thing that they do or she does. I <laughs> well, honestly, not, I don't know. Yeah. I think she but doesn't we do mind. Know. We do. Well, know yeah. Severian says that the only, the only person that she would truly give herself to willingly uh, and, and, you know, with desire would be to Dr. Talos. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And Severian who remembers does not realize that Jolinda is the skinny waitress who served in breakfast two weeks ago says it isn't her fault. You know how she looks. And Talos, who has contrived her looks, is still uh, not aesthetically impressed by them. He says, too gaudy, too gaudy by far. Do you yeah, know that, what? That's yeah. what makes me wonder if he was actually like, was he was he fiddling with his, <laughs> his, with his work there? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, well, maybe, maybe, maybe he's just toned up, turned it up too high, turned it yeah. up too high. Yeah. Well, maybe. Yeah. He says, do you know what I like about you, Sir Severian? You prefer Dorcas, which is, that's, I mean, that's the whole thing I was mentioning before about mm -hmm. how Dorcas is, is in the shadow of Jalenta. But, uh, you know, Talos seems to think that she has uh, superior qualities. Yeah. And he's, I think it's too, he likes Severian because he can see through the artifice, or at right. least he, he, we don't know. Right. What? At this point, we don't know what Jalenta really is. But the fact that he says that um, is sort of like him saying, I like you because you're smart, because yeah. you, you know what's going on. <laughs> or, yeah, you, you or at you least can, you're, you'll figure it out. Right. You, you can you can appreciate true uh, aesthetic mm -hmm. beauty. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 
Talos asks about where Dorcas is, and Severian warns him not to give Dorcas the treatment he deals out to Jolenta. And Talos says, I wouldn't think of it. I'm only afraid she may be lost. So, yeah, Severian was thinking that maybe Talos was looking at her to give her a beating. Yeah, for, for walking off or something. But no, right. I think I think just another point to say that, yeah, he's not just beating her. Something right. else was going on in there. Maybe, maybe. Uh, Severian says his surprise expression convinced me that he was telling the truth. Again, we are left to guess how he conveys surprise. And uh, Severian says they only talked briefly, but Dorcas had gone off to get water. And we get some more exposition here. Talos says it's courageous of Dorcas to go off and get water. And Severian looks at him curiously and Talos says, well, she's afraid of water. Didn't you know? She's clean, but... Even when she washes, the water is only thumb deep. When we cross bridges, she holds on to Jolenta and trembles. I don't know when I figured out that Dorcas was resurrected from the Garden of Endless Sleep. You know, At that point, I was just literally pushing through. I was aware mm-hmm. uh, by that point that there was some unclarified story happening just outside of my line of sight, and I was just pushing through the first time. The only reason I... I pushed through was so I could get to the part of the novel where everything was explained. And I, I, I think I thought that, you know, this is expected to be a hint of the final big conventional non-occluded reveal for first time readers when they get to the sword of Lictor. Since I wasn't really trying to outsmart the novel the first time through, I don't know if I was ahead of the narrative here. A lot of people probably were. I'm not sure. I do know. I do like that. We're going to talk about death here. Like we get our first sort of Mm -hmm. not exactly personification, but we start talking about death as a thing itself rather than than just dying or a person dying. Um, But it does happen really close in the context here. Yeah. Yeah. So at this point, Dorcas returns and Severian stops paying any attention to Dr. Talos. Although they didn't talk much before now, she puts down the bucket of water, which she'll tell us was for Jolenta. Remember that Jolenta is barely able to walk, let alone carry two buckets of water from, you know, wherever she's getting the water. I'm sure there's, you know, like I said, a lot of places in this garden, but there is a place nearby. Severian records that Dorcas seemed to devour him with her eyes. They'd been separated about a week. But remember, it was a week in which Severian has been taken captive twice. He's not even quite the same person anymore because Mm -hmm. he has another person's mind incorporated into his. And it's not like he can just look Dorcas up with GPS on her phone. If he couldn't find House Absolute or if he missed connecting with her there, it's not obvious exactly how he would find her. As for Dorcas, it was five or six days of travel to the House Absolute, surrounded by Jolenta, Baldanders, and Dr. Talos. Uh, We can imagine how that would be. I mean, she's essentially a random add-on. The troop is organized around Dr. Talos, at least superficially, Baldanders, his patient, Jolenta, his creation. Severian, it appears to me, is his surreptitious purpose. At the very least, Severian is a troop member that Talos actively recruited, But Dorcas is just a girl who showed up with Severian, and there are other reasons she's uncomfortable alone with them, related to what she says next. Uh, She says, I have missed you so. I've been so lonely without you. (laughs) And Severian thinks it's funny that anyone would miss him. He holds the edge of his Fulgian cloak and says, you miss this? She says, (laughs) death, you mean. 
Did I miss death? No, I missed you. Yeah, in fact, she's apparently been afraid of death. So, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of it, yeah, of in water, in water, yeah. in water. Yeah, yeah. And on its own, you know, this little scene is a bit too sweet of a romance for me, anyway. But it's also ironic, not foreshadowing, but backshadowing, you know, because she's been dead for forty years. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, it, there's a weird irony to this too, right? Because with Christian symbols, water is rebirth, right? Water right. is, and that's literally what happened to her, but she doesn't recognize that as a good thing, right? I right. Mean, we're going yeah. to get to that, that it's, it's, yeah, she's terrified when she realizes what's happened. So it's kind of the same symbol. It does the same thing, but in Dorcas's experience of it, it's monstrous somehow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You make a, yeah. you make a good point that baptism is a a picture of of death and resurrection, literally being reborn. Yeah. Right, exactly. So Dorcas took the edge of the cloak from Severian's hand. And she leads him like it's a leash to a line of poplar trees that formed one of the walls of the green room. And we're told that all around these tents are jugglers tossing their knives and acrobats tossing their children. <laughs> I think this is a good place to define the green room, uh, which probably most people listening to this already know. The green room is a traditional term that refers to the place where the actors wait backstage before going on to perform. And no one knows exactly where it came from. It's been supposed that it goes all the way back to the time of Shakespeare. The term Shakespeare and his contemporaries seem to have used was the tiring rooms or the tiring house, which might just be a hedge. The green plot of grass, that was the stage itself uh, where the plays were performed. I think part of what is important to Wolf, the author, is that here we ha again have the infamous green-blue pairing here that repeats throughout the story and goes all the way back to Fifth Head of Cerberus with Green St. Anne and Blue St. Croix. But it doesn't stop here. It recurs in the Book of the Long Sun and Short Sun, in the novel Pandora by Holly Hollander, where the protagonist's assistant detective is Aladdin Blue. Uh, you see it casually in short stories like Counting Cats in Zanzibar in, in the Strange Traveler's Collection, uh, where the protagonist and her Taurus uh, antagonists square off it, around a green-orange between them, uh, sitting on a boat, remember the constellation Navis, surrounded by the blue ocean. And yes, yeah, I think there is a Hamlet's Mill component here. Sorry, but there is. The, the green earth where we live and the blue heavens, which is the extension of the surrounding ocean where the mythos occurs. The word myth is just another word for story. But it's also reasonable that he simply, you know, likes the poem Green and Blue by uh, by uh, Virginia Woolf. And, you know, he likes the name association. Remember that in Fifth Head of Cerberus, and they, number five finds a volume of Woolf on the shelves in the library mm -hmm. while looking for his father's books. Okay, back to it. Dorcas <laughs> takes him to a bench next to some beds of herbs. We were wrapped in the stillness of the gardens. They're perhaps the largest tract of land anywhere planned and planted for beauty, save for those wildernesses that are the gardens of the Increate and whose cultivators are invisible to us. Overlapping hedges formed a narrow door. We passed into a grove of trees with white perfumed boughs that reminded me sadly of the flowering plums through which the Praetorians had dragged Jonas and me, though those had seemed planted for ornament, and these, I thought, for the sake of their fruit. 
Okay, so these plum trees. She takes a twig of about six plum blossoms and puts it in her blonde hair. Yeah, I also like the fact that in that part, he's like remembering the garden that he and Jonas were dragged through <laughs> when, yeah, when they're I mean, being prisoners. He's like, yeah. oh, but I did, I did take some time to notice the foliage. <laughs> yeah, and compare uh, Dorcas to the Praetorians who are dragging them to the antechamber, which... Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so these plum trees, uh, she takes a twig of about six plum blossoms and puts them in her blonde hair. And we might as well keep track. Uh, this is the fourth flower that Dorcas has put in her hair. Uh, the first was on the Lake of Birds. She plucked a water hyacinth out of nowhere and put it in her hair. And then the night before Agulus's execution, she put a daisy in her hair and then a moonflower. And now it's plum blossoms. And according to Michael Andre Drusi in his chapter guide to the Book of the New Sun, he says that water hyacinths represent constancy, uh, apparently per Roy Lackey. Daisies mean innocence. But when they're wild, they symbolize, I will think of that, or perhaps I will remember it. Moonflowers still permantis, represent attachment, and now plum blossoms, meaning keep your promise, or alternately, I say, uh, remember your promise. Now, I don't dispute that, but I'm coming to believe there's a common thread in all these flowers in her hair, and it's not San Francisco. <laughs> I still think a lot of it has Ophelia references, and I I talked about that, but the Ophelia who died and the, you know, who, who drowned and yeah. had... The last thing she does while she's going crazy is she hands out flowers to everybody. I think we, we talked about this back. Yeah, and they were daisies, right? Uh, daisies were were one of the things. Yep, there were a bunch of different things. Okay, well. But yeah, hyacinths weren't there. The plum flowers certainly weren't there. I just think my sense is that it's something he started with in that moment, and it became like a fun way to kind of <laughs> like, like, let's check in on how Dorcas is doing. And this thing about like whole, saving our promise, it's kind of like saying, hey, I was constant to you the whole time we were apart like there there may be something about that <laughs> well you know there's in in seinfeld they every time elaine comes into his apartment she's eating and that was because mm -hmm. you know they, they couldn't figure out something for her to do while she was delivering her line so they just had her eat <laughs> so maybe that's maybe that's maybe that's what oh, it could well is. be it could well be yeah. but i just like that if he was going to do that at least it seems like you know if if we're going by the way mantis categorizes the flowers here then i it's useful it's it's on it's on theme works yeah okay well let me give you my idea okay by the name as we said back in chapter 24 episode of shadow the torturer by name hyacinths represent resurrection the uh the, the apollo hyacinth myth of ancient greece obviously because dorcas has been resurrected but remember that embedded into the concept of resurrection is death shadow of death is cast over every resurrection and yes in chapter 30 of Shadow of the Torture, there's the image uh, of daisies in the hair, a reference to Hamlet. And there are indeed, in chapter 30, a lot of references to Hamlet. And daisies there represent, you know, the innocence of Ophelia. But Ophelia dies by submersion in water in that play. So again, the daisies forebode death and submersion. But I think it goes even further. Daisies are symbolic of the day. They come from the word day's eye, as we said. They only open during the day. And in chapter 30, the daisy in Dorcas's hair wilts in the night, and she replaces it with a moonflower in her hair instead, a flower that 
only opens at night. So again, the picture here is death. And I suppose that a moonflower opens at night. That's another symbol of resurrection. And I do think that is the connection here because the plum blossom, plums originate in China where they represent the herald of spring. They bloom just before spring, which means they are like the hyacinths. They represent their resurrection. And like the hyacinth, in representing resurrection, they also represent death. And I think this is the intended connection because Dorcas puts the plum blossoms in her hair and she begins immediately to open a conversation where she's troubled and she doesn't know why, but what's troubling her is her death because she's been resurrected from death. Mm -hmm. And it, that makes sense. That all makes sense. So Dorcas takes Severian to a separate garden that is beyond the orchard. It seems to Severian that this is a particularly old orchard, so old that the only people around here that remember it are the gardeners themselves. The bench <laughs> is carved from stone and has carved heads ornamenting it, but the faces on the carved stone have been completely eroded away. Uh, perhaps this is a reference that Dorcas herself is older than she appears. Uh, the beds of flowers are mixed with herbs, rosemary, angelica, mint, basil, and rue. So let's see. Uh, according to Mantis, the symbolism here is rosemary is remembrance, angelica is inspiration, mint is virtue, basil is hatred, and rue is disdain. I don't get anything from that. Um, see, in mythology, mint is connected to a naiad, a mermaid of sort, who was flirting with Hades and got transformed into the herb either by Persephone or Demeter, that applies. The reference to rosemary, along with mint, I'd be anxious to make an association with that if Myrtle were here as well. I wait for the Long Sun podcast. Ultimately, I can't get a common association for these herbs collectively. Maybe they were Wolf's favorite herbs. I, I don't know. Anyway, the dirt in the beds is black as chocolate, so the gardeners are giving the plants you know, proper attention here. And there's also a little stream coming from a, quote, ruined fountain. And Severian figures this is where Dorcas got the water. All that's left of the fountain is a shallow bowl that fills and overflows into a stream that he calls, quote, little canals lined with rough masonry to water the fruit trees. So they sit on the bench with Terminus S leaning against the arm. And Dorcas takes Severian's hands in hers. Now, none of this is revelatory or mysterious for rereads. It's only like that for readers who did not cue to the fact that Dorcas was resurrected from the Lake of Birds, and people should at least figure that out after Severian resurrected the Ulan. But this is, you know, this is like the turn in the movie, The Sixth Sense, where Haley Joel Osment confesses to Bruce Willis that he sees dead people. She says, <laughs> I'm afraid I have such terrible dreams. And Severian says, since I've been gone? And she says, all the time. <laughs> yeah. But Severian is confused because when they woke up after the play, she said she just had a good dream and that it was detailed and seemed real. It seems that should be significant. She was having that dream, I suppose, you know, at the same time that Severian was having his dream, no dream, about Marubius giving him his political science test. But I, I've thought about it and why she would be having a 
good dreams back then. And I, I come up with nothing. And it could be that what she counts as a dream maybe isn't. I mean, especially the the closer she is to having well, just been resurrected. I don't maybe know. Maybe Rubius was giving her good dreams. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I feel like with Dorcas, we get so little really from in her head. It, it's just hard to say. Mm-hmm. But anyway, it's all gone bad since Piteous Gate. She can't even remember having that good dream. And of course, not that Talos has mentioned it, Severian notices that the whole time they're talking, Dorcas is carefully not looking at the water coming from the broken fountain. And there's some irony here. She is in love with Severian, who is and will bring the white fountain, but she can't Mm -hmm. look at a fountain out of fear. And also, when she leaves Severian, she's going to travel down the guile to the remote, scary parts of the of south of the citadel to find the house that she shared with Severian's grandpa. And that must have been very scary. Yeah. And just to think about all this water stuff here um, and the way it's associated with fear and also associated with the resurrection, um, like what, when you look back from knowing the whole story, what Wolf's doing here is really making it clear that resurrection and rebirth doesn't come without costs. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not easy. It may actually be in Dorcas's case, like there can actually be some tragedy involved. Yeah. Like it's not all just, you know, oh, it's all great now and we're in heaven and it's all perfect. Right. <laughs> it's not, it's, it's not going to be that kind of thing. Like, and then we find out in earth, of course, it means that you have to destroy all of human history basically to start over um, right. in something in, in a totally different way, which is not what I think. I mean, that's why so many people argue over whether it's a good thing or a bad thing in this. Um so what I think he's really trying to do here is point out how complicated the whole idea of death and resurrection actually is, that it's not a sort of simplistic way of saying, oh, you know, well, if you just see the bigger picture, then you'll be resurrected afterwards and everything's going to be good. It's like, no, there's still a ton of, of tragedy and difficulty and pain involved in this whole process. Mm-hmm. And um, now the thing I think is really hard to figure out is for Dorcas, I feel like the story of her resurrection ultimately kind of ends tragically. Like for her, resurrection isn't ultimately a happy thing because everything that she had lived with is gone. And she only thinks about the past. Like she doesn't, she doesn't really live for the future. I mean, her whole story, when we find out about how she's gone back after all of this, it seems like she just went back to the place where her husband was and Found his grave. Found his grave and just who knows what happened after that, but doesn't seem like she... Well, one thing we do know, Severian sends um, Owen down to find her. And right. he's going to, you know, he's going to take care of her. She's a, she's a young girl, but she's going to be reunited with her son. And I right. don't... Hopefully. And hope, yeah. maybe the maybe the point there is that maybe she does have some kind of life after that. Like maybe Owen is going to take her on we just don't know right like there's i guess there's some some not knowing in that but nonetheless dorcas does seem to me like a big 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 example of wolf saying resurrection can be bad um and so you gotta take an account or have bad in it right every resurrection like i said every every resurrection has a death so exactly yeah so that's what i think is is going on there and so i think whenever if you do take the the whole idea that oh no this is all going towards a good thing where you know the new sun will bring rebirth and it'll all be good in the end and severian's here for the ultimate good and all of that well okay but then how do you why does he spend so much time giving us the details of all these negative things like he what is he trying to sort of emphasize by having us go through these negative stories and i feel like that's dorcas's big thing there so anyway in all of which is to say it's it's not easy 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. She now explains her dreams. She says, every night I dream I'm walking through streets of shops. I am happy or at least content. I have money to spend and there's a long list of things I wish to buy. Again and again, I recite the list to myself and I try to decide in what parts of the quarter I can get each in the best quality for the lowest price. But gradually, as I go from shop to shop, I grow aware that everyone who sees me hates me and holds me in contempt. And I'm aware that it's because they believe me to be an unclean spirit who has wrapped itself in the woman's body they see. At last, I enter a tiny shop conducted by an old man and an old woman. She sits making lace while he spreads their wares on the counter for me. I hear the sound her thread makes behind me as it's pulled through the work. Mm. What she comes to buy are tiny clothes, right? Yeah. Um, note too that what she's talking about here is kind of coming to a shop, just like we find out, you know, she was working in a shop with her husband, but here it's an old man and an old woman. Mm -hmm. So there's still something about dream logic, sort of taking things and switching them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But, but Severian goes on with these tiny clothes there, dolls clothing, perhaps. I particularly remember little shirts of fine wool. At last I choose one and hand the old man money, but it's not money at all. Only a lump of filth. And she's crying bitterly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think thinking of doll's clothes, it's it's got to be baby clothes, right? Like yes, she's yeah, be, yeah, I think that's the understanding yeah. is that yeah. she died uh, shortly after birth or maybe even during birth. Yeah, and she goes on, I want to scream then that they're wrong, that I'm not the foul specter they take me for. Yet I know that if I do, whatever I may say will be taken as the final proof that they're right. And the words choke me. The worst part is that just then the hissing of the thread stops. I know that no one can understand who's not had the same dream, but it's terrible, terrible. And then I sleep, or at least fall into blackness. If I don't wake then, there's a second dream. I'm in a boat pulled across a spectral lake. Yeah, she says it's not the boat that she and Severian and Agia and Hildegrin took across the Lake of Birds, right? Yeah, yeah. And we get to that, but first, that whole idea that you know the dream stops when the sound of thread being pulled stops. Yeah. I mean, it's totally death and you know your life is right. is how you're woven into everything else just a kind of cool a cool yeah. way to get that yeah get that the, like the there. like the norns right so exactly they they, they, they yeah. spin the thread they pull the thread and then someone yeah. cuts the thread yeah yeah um so now she says though it's not that boat but a much smaller one an old man pulls it and i lie on his feet i'm awake but i can't move my arm trails in the black water just as we're about to touch shore i fall from the boat but the old man doesn't see me, and as I sink through the water, I know that he's never known I was there at all. Soon the light's gone, and I'm very cold. Far above me, I hear a voice I love calling my name, but I can't remember whose voice it is. Mm. So Dorcas has this superpower like Severian. She also can sense things that she doesn't have any direct knowledge of. Mm -hmm. But I think you know, with knowledge of the big picture, especially if we merge it with you know, what grandpa told Severian in the lake, she's wandering through the old quarter where they lived. And now it's completely abandoned. Uh, Dorcas and her husband had a cloisonne shop, like you said, with mm -hmm. Dorcas's father and brothers, the area South of the Citadel was still barely livable 40 years ago. And there were little shops and later she says that it was mostly old people in this quarter. At the end, old people who have something there that they can't bear to leave. So those are the old people where she's buying baby clothes. And this is her memory of that. And she goes into the shop to buy baby clothes. And she says she's buying a shirt, 
So I guess this is for Owen, her baby, Severian's father. If she died from childbirth, that explains why the money that she offers to buy the clothes is direct from the bottom of the Lake of Birds. If she's 16 or 17, then she was 13 or 14 when she married. There's some you know, creepy stuff throughout, some horror-related elements. But the sound of the thread pulling, I think, is the th sound of thread that's used to seal her mouth uh, when they put the lead bars in. Mm, yeah, that would make sense. Yeah. yeah. So, let's see, in the second dream, she's carried into the river for her body to be buried. She looks up through the water. She sees her husband looking for her. Uh, quote, soon the light is gone and I am very cold. She's at the bottom of the lake. She says, far above me, I hear a voice. I love calling my name, but I cannot remember whose voice it is. And Severian is trying to be comforting. He says, it's my voice calling to wake you. <laughs> and, and Dorcas says, yeah, perhaps. Yeah. In fact, I think it's grandpa's voice. And that's the way mm -hmm. I see it. Yeah, yeah, all, yeah. all the pieces are there in its you know, creepy way. Yeah. So I think, too, the dreams are about what she's missed and what she feels like she's still missing now, right? Like mm -hmm. the dream about everybody thinking she's a ghost is her feeling out of place and feeling like she doesn't really belong here. She belongs right. in a different time. So there's that. But then there's also the idea of what kind of pain her death has caused. And so she sits there and thinks about and, and is somehow aware of what her husband's been doing this whole time and how sad and empty that made him feel and sort of being being aware of that and that your loss is you being lost is what's caused that i mean that's that's some horrible stuff right mm -hmm. i mean that's just there's there's what she's experiencing now that's sad it's like how her husband was sad too so so all it seems at this point that she's experienced by being resurrected is sad sad and mm -hmm. empty yeah, yeah. and uh Severian records that quote the whip mark dorcas had carried from piteous gate burned on her cheek like a brand so yeah so they just sit there for a while without saying anything yeah. and that it's sort of reminding her it's like she's marked right i mean it's it's a reminder of being like she's marked not well, just with yeah. a, a whip but she's marked in with this this loss that she's she has through. a stigmata so, yeah yeah i sort of accept yeah and it's and then it's her you know whatever it is about her spirit her this has marked her spirit is somehow mm -hmm. being different and we'd think it would be such a good thing but without memory which is kind of the big trick here is that without without really integrating her memory into what has happened here she really is just kind of like a lost soul and yeah. so maybe that's the point maybe that is when owen can go back to her and she can have some connection to everything that she's lost like she may have lost her memory but other people can can use their memories to tie things back in maybe that will will help with some kind of redemption something like that seems to fit with the, how memory works in this book anyway. Yeah. And of course, when Owen sees her, he's going to, he's going to recognize her as her, mm -hmm. as his mother come again. Oh, yeah. And she's yeah. going to recognize him too. Right. Yep. And um, yeah, she's going to see Severian's face in his too, I think, because everyone seems to. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's, well, it's going to be more sadness in a way. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there's no, which is why I guess there's no evidence that Severian ever went back to find Orcus or, reunite it's all just terribly awkward yeah so now they're they're sitting there he says the yeah. nightingales were silent now but linnets were singing in all the trees nightingales of course sing at night and linnets a finch or sparrow like bird i i suppose sings you know during the day so i i figure this means that we are well into the morning now 
And Severian says, I saw a parrot clad in scarlet and green like a little messenger in livery flash among the branches. Again, Dorcas expresses openly her phobia of water. She says she wouldn't have even brought Severian there, but it's the only place that she could think to go. And now she's thinking of better options. And Severian can't understand why she hates the water so much. He thinks the little stream is pretty. And she says it looks pretty, quote, because it's here in the sunshine. But by its own nature, it runs down and down forever away from the light. Everything, everything, <laughs> all her thoughts turn morbid. Yeah. Uh, this is two types of symbolism. Uh, one is that Dorcas has spent 40 years away from light in the bottom of a lake, but also that the sun, the new sun is life and darkness is death. And that symbolism extends to the megatherians in the darkness in the bottom of the ocean, or perhaps a particular megatherian who in his own existence contains dark caverns where the sun never reaches. Mm -hmm. They are death. Yeah. And it's cool too, that when in earth of the new sun, remember Severian gets to have this big, long, weird hike underwater, right? <laughs> where he yeah. gets to go down under things and he can finally, whether or not it's him really breathing or whether it's his spirit doing so we can get to all that later. But, but there it's kind of, fun because the idea is that once he finally can survive underwater that's mm -hmm. when he's able to go back and really see history and see what's happened to the lost things mm -hmm. and still know that there's some promise and some way to continue so it's it's only only much later that water this the sort of whole thing about water will bring death to human beings right it only becomes not a scary thing later because we know the undines are going to offer him that right they'll say hey right. if we can we can help you breathe underwater but yeah. there that's kind of monstrous because it's doing something the wrong way right it's it's sure. somehow saying you will do it and you can avoid well, death whereas there's something else well, yeah we're embrace death in order to uh, to avoid it yeah but but yeah. by accepting a kind well i mean it's it, isn't that the deal of of a vampire to be an undead mm -hmm. and yeah Yep. But, you know, Severian is still a, a glass half full kind of guy. He says, <laughs> yeah, sure, the water flows down, but it rises like a 17 year old mother who sinks to the bottom in death and rises again. Yeah, yeah this is like debate club, but with symbols. Yeah, on. yeah. <laughs> Cheer up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he says, the rain we see in spring is the same water we saw running the gutters the year before, or so Master Malrubius taught us. And Dorcas's smile flashed like a star. Like a star. Mm, yep. Uh, yep. Remember that it's not until Earth of the new sun that we get this obvious imagery connecting the new sun to a star. Uh, there's hints, but nothing you'd call strong at this point. Yeah. And Dorcas says, that's good to believe, whether it's true or not. Severian, it's silly for me to say you're the best person I know because you're the only good person I know. But I think if I met a thousand others, you would still be the best. That's what I wanted to talk to you about. So here is where I think things get interesting. I'm not 100% on what it means, though. It's also pretty, pretty much wrong, too. She's, you know, <laughs> or she's, she's got to say, I see the really deep inside of you. <laughs> Just not anything that you've actually done yet. Right, yeah. So Severian says, quote, if you need my protection, you have it. You know that. Severian is all about protecting Dorcas. I, I think he's prompted to say this by seeing that mark on her cheek that she got at the piteous gate. But Dorcas says, no, I don't want your protection. I'm trying to protect you. And she mentions that she has no family, only Severian, which is irony because Severian is her family, the only family nearby. And 
you know, here we go. The Severian says, well, you have Jalenta and Dr. Talos and Baldanders, but Dorcas counters that they don't actually exist. She says, they are no one. Don't you feel mm-hmm. that, Severian? Even I am no one, but they are less than I. The five of us were in the tent last night, and yet you were alone. You told me once that you don't have much imagination, but you must have sensed that. So I think the first part of this is the meaning of this chapter title, Personifications. Hmm. Whether Baldanders or Talos and Jalenta are persons, they're contrived entities. Um, we'll, in the next chapter, perhaps we'll, we'll have some discussion about whether and to what degree Jalenta wants to be a person as opposed mm-hmm. to be merely a, an idea, personification of desire. Yeah. It, and I can see where she gets that with everybody but herself, um, unless she is just supposed to be right now because she doesn't have that memory. If she mm-hmm. is sort of pure innocence because she literally doesn't know who she is or or and was literally just born. Um, so maybe that would make her a personification too. Otherwise, I think, you know, Talus just comes right out and seems to tell Severian later that in a lot of ways, yeah, Baldanders and I are a story. Like we're, we're, <laughs> you know, maybe a cautionary tale or a monstrous tale or something, but we are, we are Frankenstein, you know, mm-hmm. so we are so much a story that, you know, we cause the story back in history, all this kind of stuff, which is really cool, but is making it sound less like being an actual person with a character that isn't limited just to a couple ideas. In other right. words, they don't develop. They kind of have these traits and they carry out these traits and that's it. But they're not a soul. Well, maybe not even that they, they don't develop, but that they have been developed beyond personality or or regular humans anymore. Baldenders is a his own creation, mm-hmm. right? He's 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 decided to take, use the only thing he had, which I guess he decided to, for his body, and transform it into something else. He yeah. he is just the creation of whoever Baldanders used to be, and so is uh, so is Talos, and uh, Jalenta is Talos's creation. She's the creation of a, of a creation. We're going to find out she's got as much artificial stuff putting her together and holding her together as regular you know, human bones and even, and even her personality and the way she thinks it might in fact be, you know, just a hypnotic suggestion. Yeah. I like that too. Yeah. So Dorcas is questioning whether the other members of the troop are even persons at all. And she concludes herself in this. She, she has this sense of contempt for her own existence, right? Which, you know, it's a morbidity. She's, she's got this shadow that she doesn't understand of, of morbid memory, the only thing she really sees in her past. She doesn't have any much else as in her past. Yeah. Um, okay, so Dorcas is not a person because she's actually a dead corpse, which I think is really unfair. She used to be a corpse. <laughs> that doesn't mean she's dead any more than any living person is dead. But remember, at this point in the story, I think this grouping means that none of the members of the troop are what Severian thinks they are. Right, Dorcas is dead. Yeah, Baldinger's yeah. is a brilliant, diminutive scientist. Uh, Talos is an automaton created by Baldanders to take care of him. Uh, essentially, like any scientist, 
uh, you know, creates robots to help him in his laboratory. And Jolento, once again, is a skinny waitress who had a job that was barely above begging two weeks ago. And mm. they are all playing at being something else. Dorcas, less than the others. Dorcas is a creation of sort of the power of the claw, but she's just what she was brought back to life. And Baldanders, Talos, Jolento, they're all creations of technology. They're, they're artifices. They're objects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at the very end, acts kind of condescending to Dorcas. I'll protect you. But she pushes through. She says that she wants to protect Severian from, quote, the opinion of the world. She reminds Severian of her dream where all the people in the quarter saw her only as some hideous ghost. And she says, they may be right. That's part of the reason the dream is so painful. The other part comes from knowing that in some other way they're wrong. The foul specter is in me. It is me. But there are other things in me, too. And they are what I am as much as it is. And Severian says, oh, you could never be a foul specter or anything foul. <laughs> Again, condescending. But she pushes back. Oh, yes, I can. <laughs> I can be a foul specter. And Severian records that Dorcas, quote, looked up at me. Her small, tilted face was never more beautiful than it was then in the sunlight or more pure. So if you follow the theory that whenever there's a reference to the sunlight on someone's face or head, that they are members of Severian's family, then, you know, this is confirmation for you because we definitely know that Dorcas is family. This is the test case. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So just to tabulate the occurrences, there was Thecla in her cell and Agia on the taxi before they crashed into the Cathedral of the Claw, and Agia and Agilus in Agilus's cell, and Morwenna in Severian's dream in the first chapter of Claw the Conciliator, and Thea in the forest when she comes to visit Severian and Jonas, and now here is Dorcas. So, okay, obviously we know Dorcas is related. I personally have a theory of how Thecla and Thea are related to Severian. You look on the Patreon for James's false Thecla theory. And then there's that corpse that Bodilus and company drag out of the grave. Uh, Severian records, I saw something in white appear at their feet. They bent to lift it as though an Amshapan had touched them with his radiant wand. The fog swirled and parted and let a beam of green moonlight fall. They had the corpse of a woman. And this could be read as fitting the bill because moonlight is reflected sunlight. Again, because of my theory about false Thecla and the illusions and parallels in the first chapter to the first chapter of the Great Expectations and the similarities of this body to Thecla, I'm really open to that. But how is Morwenna and Agia and Agilus? How are they family? That's a mystery, if it's true. Oh, oh yeah. I say the Autarch is indirectly Severian's mother, and there's that scene where Severian holds up the coin with the Autarch's image, chapter three of Shadow, and a beam of sunlight shines on it. So if the model holds, I'm taking that as another confirmation. (laughs) Uh, On the other hand, Valeria and Odello never get caught in the sunlight, in the face treatment. Not that I can think of right now. So unless things change, if we accept this theory, that's a disconfirmation of Valeria being Severian's twin, which to me seems impossible. Uh, What Wolf gives with one hand, he, he takes with the other. But maybe there's a scene where the sun shines on her. And then again, I, I don't at this time recall that we ever get sun on the face with Owen or Grandpa in his boat or false Seca. So maybe it means something else. 
but related. But maybe we shouldn't rely on disconfirmation so much since they could you know, just reflect that there was no opportunity for the sun to shine. Or maybe the whole theory is hooey. Hard to say right now. <laughs> it's hard to say if we're getting into Borsky territory. With, with <laughs> one, one never I mean, knows when they have gone into Borsky territory. Hey, are we in Borsky territory? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We have one speculative symbol, which is not directly stated in the text. And if we apply yes. that in multiple various ways, then we might. Yeah. Anyway. No, <laughs> not to rag on Worski. Worski was a groundbreaker. No, I'm so grateful for Worski. Yeah, yeah. So her foul spirit. Yeah, yeah. Dorcas says, "Yes, I could be a foul spirit." Although, again, you know, why she thinks of her that way, rather rationally, rather than maybe intuitively via sixth sense, that's not obvious to me. But she says, "Just as you, Severian, I can be what they call you, what you are sometimes are." And what Severian sometimes is called and what he sometimes is, is death. Yeah. And I think there's part of the reason she says foul spirit is that's a misreading of what she is. She's misplaced, right? She's mm-hmm. she's not necessarily foul. It's not it's has nothing to do with pure or impure. It has more to do with just being out of time and and being sort of put in the wrong time, which is right. what's happened to her. That she's, yeah, she just doesn't fit quite where she belongs, and she interprets that as foul, um, but that's not not exactly what it is. Just like she's right about Severian being death, but if he's also the conciliator, then he's not just death. That's only right. that's necessary a necessary part of him, but it's not the whole story. Uh, yeah, and that's her and that's her point, right? Yep. Uh, uh, there's a lot of detail, which I suppose is to remind us as readers that specific series of events that led up to this moment she's talking about. You know, she reminds him that the night they saw the, you know, apparition in the cathedral in the sky, and then they walked down the road between the trees talking about philosophy, and then they came upon the play just ready to start, and that Baldanders was playing his drum. We're reminded Severian had executed Agilus's that day, and Agia had screamed at the moment. Mm-hmm. Talos, Severian recalls, he said that everyone had come now and that you were innocence and I was death. And Dorcas agrees. That's right, Severian. And she says, but you're not really death. No matter how often he calls you that, you're no more death than a butcher is because he cuts the throats of steers all day. Oh, remember that one of the meanings of Matichin is a butcher. Not a not yeah. a shop butcher, but someone who works in a slaughterhouse. But she's saying, you're not the personification of death. Neither is the butcher. He's also a guy who creates life-giving food. Maybe he's the father of children. Yep. Yeah. And this, by the way, is one difficulty with personifications, is that they take one thing and and insist that that's sort of the essence of the thing, right? That's, I mean, that's yeah, kind that's of the whole that's, that's thing. exactly why we talked about, you know, what Talus and Baldanders have kind of become is where they take one aspect or one thing and they just go full bore. And that's what what Jalenta has done is she's sort of become and and devoted everything about herself to be this desirable thing. So it's personification to become a personification literally means to kind of give up everything for an idea. Uh, maybe maybe Wolf has got something to say here about symbols. Maybe that's, you know, we started this this book talking a lot about symbols. Mm-hmm. I think it's an example of symbols. And now Wolf was trying to remind us that, you know, symbols like words can have more than one meaning. And, uh, you know, any symbol that means more than one thing. 
Yeah. And that is one interesting thing that the way they're talking about personifications here, or at least Dorcas, the way she's talking about it, it's a very limited thing, right? And like you said, symbols can mean more than one thing. And actually the real power of a symbol is that it can collect all kinds of disparate things into one sort of greater whole and, and mm -hmm. can kind of create meaning out of collecting a whole bunch of different things. But a personification, the way they're talking about it here is, is a really, really, really limited thing. And right. so, yeah, there's, there's again, different kinds of symbols we could talk about. Um, and maybe a personification is even, maybe it's again, the thing of like understanding a symbol, but only in one way. So just like, right. you know, talking about Severian as death is correct, but it's limited. And so it's, it's right, but it's not right enough because there are other things he is as well, um, that aren't just personifications. And maybe that's the purpose of recalling the conversation about philosophy in that, mm -hmm. Everything has at least, you know, three meanings, right? I think so. I think so. So Zorkis uh, says, to me, your life, and though she doesn't realize it, he brought her back to life. Yeah. And literally, are, she means, yeah, yeah, yeah. she's like, <laughs> you're, you're the thing that gives meaning to my life right now. But also, even though she's not aware of it, she, he is literally the thing that gave her life. Yeah. Right. He, yeah. He is life. Yeah. And she says, and you're a young man named Severian. And if you wanted to put on different clothes and become a carpenter or a fisherman, no one could stop you. And Severian reminds her that he does not want to change careers. And Dorcas says, well, yes, but you could at any moment. And that's the thing to remember. And I wonder if this conversation matters in that we're often asked whether Severian is a puppet or is locked in by fate that he becomes a new son because he has already become the new son, the angel of death, the executioner, the resurrector of the world. And Dorcas is refuting that. She asserts that Severian is not just a deterministic artifact, an archetype. He has free will and is only what he chooses to be. Yeah. I mean, the cool way to look at that is if you're thinking about even just the idea that Severian is like a Christ figure, a Christ-like figure. Being like Christ, you could say that that is kind of like becoming a personification, but the whole idea is that it's not a limiting thing. It's not like you are, you are, you don't become Christian rather than a carpenter, right? It's like you right. become <laughs> Christian and that, and that changes then everything else about what you're doing and all your other choices right. too. It's not that kind of a thing to become. And I think that's, kind of part of what's in the background of this conversation here is that what he's going to become, the kind of symbol he will become is a bigger symbol than just mm -hmm. one thing. So Severian, his quote unquote destiny or whatever it is, that's why it seems like his is, it's a much different kind of thing because we've talked before about how even if everything in this is sort of quote unquote deterministic and he's being manipulated to push to become this symbol, there may be something about the kind of symbol he's becoming, which it doesn't matter if he was forced into that or if he you know chose that with free will because it still has this transformative effect that makes mm. everything better and makes him more human and everything like that. So this, it's kind of like there are certain symbols, certain kind of, choices are things that could seem like they're limiting, but actually the really good symbols, the really right ones are ones that actually heighten everything else instead of sort of limit your choices. Does that make sense at all? Like, that Yeah, of, yeah, yeah. No, I it's get it. very get abstract, it. but I think that's kind of one, one thing I think there is in the background of this discussion, at least. And remember, uh, Wolf has gone out of his way to emphasize that he does not believe in determinism, something I could detect implicitly. 
even before I saw that famous video of his interview by Studs Terkel with Harlan Ellison and then Isaac Asimov and Calvin Trillian. And maybe this is setting up Severian's meeting with Master Ash and the explanation that time is a tapestry, not a single thread, and that there are alternate futures and alternate paths, or maybe, you know, maybe it's a refutation that just because, you know, in Mantis's model, Severian's future version of himself is changing his own timeline, or as many, uh, probably most readers assume that the Book of the New Sun is just a circular, unchanging timeline, like, like the movie 12 Monkeys, where Severian's life takes the course it has because, it, you know, in a sense, it has always happened. Or, or some believe that these Saudis, with their power to affect and reaffect time, are playing Severian like a fiddle. Um, it's a refuge that just because of all those things being true or not, Dorcas is saying no. Severian is a real person who can actually make his own choices. And some are, are going to say, well, what does a 16-year-old girl know? And I'll say that in this novel, Dorcas knows a lot. Unlike mm -hmm. Severian, she's always right about everything and everyone, even though she doesn't know everything. So all that stuff about, you know, time travel and whether there are multiple things, I mean, that... We, that'll get into all kinds of paradoxes when you try and figure out the logic. But I, I do mm -hmm. agree that I think that one thing Wolf wants in this book is to try to find that way to at least imaginatively figure out how to keep free will even in all those situations. And that the Severian story yeah. isn't really meaningful in the end unless he there is some kind of intentional choice and growth in all this stuff that, that he's doing. Right. Um, at least I think so. Uh, there, there are plenty of other ways to, right, to talk yeah. about that. Um, and I just, even on the, the Slack channel for Master Patrons, I just posted some long thing about <laughs> how yeah, a multiverse theory actually doesn't leave any room for free will, which I wasn't even thinking about this stuff, but yeah. I just went off on a thing about that. But that, that's a totally different different area. But anyway, yeah, I do agree. I think that, that in intention, um, Wolf wants to find some way to say that even if all the forces in the world are conspiring for Severian to be put on this path, there's still something essential in him choosing certain things and making the right path. Um, so, so, but do, that mm -hmm. does make it really much more complicated in terms of first Severian and, or, or in terms of Inere and the Asadis, you know, how, how do we figure out those roles between this conspiracy and Severian really, really being, you know, the conciliator um, or whatever he's going to become. Right. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah. And uh, Dorcas here gets her famous line about how people would prefer to just deal with people as abstractions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. People don't want other people to be people. They throw names over them and lock them in, but I don't want you to let them lock you in. Dr. Talus is worse than most in his own way. He's a liar. See, here we go again. Severian reminds her that Baldander says, tell us, lies less than people think. But I think the truth is that he tells the truth <laughs> less than people think. Yeah. When he tells the truth, it's, it's only a special, refined kind of truth. Yeah, Dorcas says, in his own way, I said, Bald Andrews is right. Dr. Talis doesn't lie the way other people understand lying. Calling you death wasn't a lie. It was a, uh, and Severian finishes her sentences, a metaphor. She says, but it was a dangerous, bad metaphor. And it was aimed at you like a lie. I think the term they're looking for is a slur, right? Where someone latches onto a single truth about you that they know to be the most hurtful and derogatory, and they call you by it as if it's the whole of your being. 
another way I think about it, I mean, just thinking about teaching English all the time is that in some ways, an interpretation of a story can be true of a story about what it's kind of quote unquote about, but it's still not as, it's not as living as the actual story. And I don't just mean it's not as pretty. It's that, you know, it's actually the meaning of the story is something that you go through the emotional progress with the characters or, or with whatever the author's saying, and then you can have some kind of realization or something like that. But just giving you like a couple paragraphs of like, here is the interpretation of great expectations. And this is what it means. And here are the themes you should look for. That's still not doing justice to why you would actually read a novel. Um, it's like, yeah. you know, I always, I always tell students, I'm like, you know, even if you can summarize something, they didn't just summarize it. Like if they just wanted to write an <laughs> essay, they didn't. Instead, they wrote a 600 page novel. So why, why do that? What else is going on? What's special about that? And that's the same kind of thinking that you could have here. Like, I mean, Wolf could very easily have just written out you know, yeah. okay, there's this guy Severian and he becomes the conciliator of this world and brings the new sun. But, yeah. um, and it's not just that this book is more entertaining that way than by doing it that way. It certainly is, but actually going through the process and the mystery and, and sort of being behind these veils and not knowing whether something is true or not, that makes you really understand the stakes a whole lot more. And it's, it's much more powerful. So I think that's kind of what she's saying that, that what Talos does too, is that he, he may be saying things that are in some ways true, but they leave out a whole lot of context and they leave right. out a yeah. whole lot of subtlety and they leave out a whole lot of other ways that, that, that might be literally true, but not true in the way that you think it is. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the variant says, do you think Dr. Talos hates me then? I would have said that he was one of the few people who've shown me real kindness since I left the Citadel. You, Jonas, Nickerid, in the Abt Chamber, a man in a yellow robe, that's, of course, the Autark, who also called me death, by the way, and Dr. Talos. It's a short list, actually. That's actually <laughs> a pretty extensive list for two weeks. <laughs> and also, he doesn't bring up that the whole discussion they've been having here is about somebody calling him death, and he just kind of rushes right by, oh, yeah, somebody else called me that, too. Um, you know, and there, of course, it means something different, right? Because the Autark right. could mean, you are literally my death. But also, you might be the death of the world, which is also its possible regeneration with the new sun. You know, if so, yeah. But there, there's all kinds of questions that come up from that, and it's a typical wolf thing. But we're not going to go into any of that. <laughs> so we'll just. Move you think on. it's odd that Severian never seems to tell anyone that he met, just met the Autark? I would guess he's would be like, and who would believe me? And <laughs> yeah. there's all the mess with Vodalus, right? Like he'd have to get into everything about Vodalus and yeah. how he had a secret message. And he, you know, right, so right. I'm sure he would, yeah, like, I'm sure not. he would tell Dorcas at some point, but uh, now may not be the right time. Hmm. So, but speaking of Dorcas says, um, I don't think he, I don't think Dr. Talos hates in the way we understand it. Dorcas replied softly, or for that matter that he loves he wants to manipulate everything he comes upon, to change it with his will. And since tearing down is easier than building, that's what he does most often. And I think, too, to remember here that what when she's talking about Talos, I think she's also implicitly talking about Baldanders, even though she doesn't really. Well, that might be, that might be, that might be true. It also might be, well, of course, it brings us back to the question of whether Dr. Talos is actually sentient. He doesn't, he doesn't love he doesn't hate. All he does is operate uh, according to an algorithm. Maybe. 
<laughs> that's our own argument. But, <laughs> um, but, and this goes to also, I think, what is wrong with with Baldanders too is the fact that maybe why Talos calls him death and seems to put that as a put down is because he doesn't really understand the larger context of death, right? Baldanders is trying to live forever. And so he's afraid of death. Whereas whatever Severian is, whatever the conciliator is, it's something that will embrace death as preparation to become something more or something yeah. bigger. But that's not what Baldanders, that's not the kind of immortality or growth that Baldanders understands. There's none of that cyclical stuff. There's none of that breaking down what you think you are in order to become something bigger. None of that goes on for them. So death would be something just bad. And maybe that's mm -hmm. why they think of it as a slur to kind of play with him and look down on him by calling him death as like, ha ha, we're so above you puny humans who are so obsessed with death. We're not going to die. Um, but actually there's, there's a bigger story. Yeah. Understand. You know, here's the difference though. Uh, Talos doesn't love. He doesn't, doesn't hate. He just wants to manipulate whatever mm -hmm. he, whatever he comes upon. Baldanders wants to consume whatever he mm -hmm. he comes upon in order to you know add it to himself um yeah. it's a different kind of i mean he he is death in his own way because in the in the sense that everything he and he comes upon he will eat and yeah. uh, absorb into himself yeah death for others so kind of this right. again looking down on things that can die because you know sure i will consume you yeah all right, so once we go, we come back to the question, why does Talos call Severian death? If we assume that Dorcas is right, that he does it for some uh, actual purpose, right? What is he getting at? I'm not sure I, I know why Talos wants to manipulate what he encounters. What is he trying to get Severian to be that he is not? Yeah, why is it an insult? Yeah, yeah. or... or, or, or if Dorcas is right, he he has a purpose in everything he does. Mm -hmm. He has he he wants to manipulate. He take he does that with he certainly does that with Jalenta, right? He manipulates her to his will for you know whatever he wants to accomplish. He changes her. Um, is he trying to do something like that with Severian in that way? I'm not. If he is, I, I can't really sure what that is uh, maybe he's yeah. trying to turn him into a character in his play that's the, that's his whole purpose i don't really know because i think it depends on and we've kind of argued about this or just had different points in the past that i mm -hmm. feel in some ways like talus must have some larger awareness of the bigger backstories of things and you said you don't really buy that quite so much but i wonder if he does, but just doesn't have the full context um, mm. just because, and I know I, I, I've gone back and forth with Mark about this too, a little bit and that, that I'm like, but he writes the play. He must know what it is. And Mark's like, ah, he just gets lucky. Or, you know, it's like, <laughs> he doesn't, or he doesn't really understand. I mean, that's, that's what I think Marcus said too. It's like, maybe he got the symbols of these things, but he doesn't really understand what's going on. Um, and I don't know, because I feel like though, if. Well, I, he's taking uh, instructions from somebody. Is it possible that he is getting the details of this play from whoever he's taking instructions from. Yeah. And, and I don't know. I mean, if it's, if it's Megatherians, then forcing Severian to think that he's death, they might think that, Oh, we'll scare you into coming to us because then you mm -hmm. can live forever. Um, right. Maybe, you know, maybe, um, 
in, in but yeah, I, I'm just not exactly sure. Like when it comes <laughs> to Severian, when it comes to anybody beyond just themselves, I'm never really sure of exactly what what motivations Wolf wants us to do for Talus and Baldanders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Yeah, Talus is the. I think I've mentioned this someplace before. Is that of all the people that it would be interesting to see a, a second novel uh, written about. It, maybe it would be Talos. What, what mm -hmm. happened to Talos? Um, you know, we almost get something of that from uh, with Iada, but yeah, not yeah. Talos. It, it, it would be, I mean, he goes off and does something. We never see him again, but you know, even let's assume he's not, let's assume I'm right. And he's not really sentient. He just um, apes sentience. He's going to move along through Earth, just manipulating anything he encounters for some purpose. And I don't know, I'm not sure what that purpose might be without Baldanders, since he was basically created to take care of Baldanders. But he seems, you know, he does come and give Severian the coin. He does seem to have that purpose, at least. Yeah. I don't know. If it is true that Talos isn't sentient, isn't able to love or anything like that and really is just kind of a robot, then maybe there's something in Talos of that kind of ironic giving birth to newer things and that mm -hmm. all the only kind of life that that Baldanders can make is sort of fake smaller stuff. Whereas Severian's basically going to help create an entire new race of wonderful green men, oh, yeah. right? <laughs> or something yeah. like that, <laughs> um, which is very different. So that, that could well be. And, and if that's the case, that does seem like a good, you know, point in your favor for Talos really not being, aware no we're we're having I being know. able to love that kind of thing yeah well he is a, i mean he is a mystery here here we have uh dark is trying to explain him and she doesn't do it enough <laughs> she doesn't go <laughs> she's not going deep enough for me um yeah i mean i don't know does he love does he love um jonas loves he desires he yep. desires jolenta he seems to love Severian. yeah talos just only has purposes and tasks yeah. Uh, he seems like he, you know, he only helps Severian in order to get the money to rebuild Baldender's house because that's the task that Baldender's has set him to complete. Uh, Darkus, she seems to be saying that Talos doesn't mean Severian ill. He just wants to manipulate him, mm -hmm. uh, the, which is sort of the way Baldender's defense of the Megatherian's intentions toward humanity in the Earth of the New Sun. They don't mean humanity ill. They only want to tame them, domesticate them. Yeah. But when you manipulate something without love, it's, it's it's more likely that you'll do, you know, harm than good because mm -hmm. there's an, like Dorcas says, there's an infinite number of ways to do harm and only a limited number of ways to do good. So I, I think the Autark calls Severian death ironically or in a way that says Severian is like himself. Remember the old Autark, you know, he also took this test to destroy and resurrect the world. In Italian, there's a, there's a term, paisan which I'm told by the linguist uh, John McWhorter means like comrade, or it originally meant, you know, peasant. Or think about the novel It by uh, Stephen King, where the protagonists call themselves the losers. In America, you know, the word Yankee was originally a, a derogatory slur that the Dutch settlers in New Amsterdam, soon to be New York, to English colonists in, in rural colonies of uh, Connecticut. So there's there's some debate about this, but my favorite explanation is that it was a transmogrification from the Dutch name Jan Kass, which would essentially mean John Cheese. And then over time, it became just a 
term for a hick. So the song Yankee Doodle is about a stupid hick named Mr. Doodle. And of course, <laughs> to the British soldiers, most the of the uh, Americans were hicks. So they were all just called Yankees. And Americans sort of adopted the slur as their own, and they took it back, as you know we used to call it when we were a kid. I have never heard the John Cheese, the Jan Kass Yankee. Oh, I like yeah, that. yeah, yeah. I didn't yeah, know yeah. that. That's very good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was a, yeah, we just kind of took it on. So all this to say, I think it's implied that the Autark does not intend it maliciously, but ironically, uh, to, to say, you know, you're death, I'm death. Um, we're the same. But Dorcas says that Talos intends it to manipulate Severian for its own purpose. So other than getting Severian to be in his play, I don't know. I'm not sure what the purpose of Talos towards Severian is, uh, and I can't really determine whether or not it's in his best interest. Mm -hmm. And I think we're going to get more insight into Talos and Bald Anderson. I think that somehow is related to what we're talking about. Severian says that Bald Anders seems to love him, though, in the, uh, that is, love Talos, in the way that Triskley would love Severian. And it seems to me that this reference must have something to do with the lesson that Malrubius gave in politics at the end of Shadow of the Torturer. Hmm. Remember, Severian gave Triskley life, although he never seems to be aware of it. And at least, you know, he never records it. And that's not the case for Bald Anderson Talos. But what is the case is that Severian took care of Triskley and that the relationship is the same for Talos and Bald Anders. So, I don't know. Dor hmm. Dorcas just turns it around. Yeah, she says, okay. Bald Anders looks at Talos the way Triskley looked at Severian when he was stitching his wounds. So, what is the way you looked at Triskley when you were stitching his wounds, hurting him in order to heal him? Uh, I can't put all this together, but I think it's all there. <laughs> hmm. I like that. And it makes me think, too, about Dorcas like Triskley. Like she may be a little bit, her devotion to Severian, Severian. may be a little bit too simple. And in that if she really, I mean, true, if she really did understand that he was the cause of all of her pain right now, she would probably have different feeling. Well, she does, it. right? I get, when she finally begins right. to realize I mean, eventually, that. Eventually, yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. So there is a bit of that as well, whereas she's kind of in the opposite side that she's, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, I, I think, I think looking back on it, we can see that Dorcas loves Severian. She yeah. loves him because, you know, he's family and she doesn't know why she loves him. But and the Severian says, you know, when you love something, you naturally want to see it as desirable. So and I think that that's kind of an explanation for her and her the yeah. way she looks at Severian. Hmm. But yeah. Talos, I don't know. The, the problem with this book is actually, despite the name of this podcast, it's a book to be read as well as reread. And much or arguably all of this conversation could just be bait from the author to foreshadow everything we're going to eventually learn about them, which leads us directly to Dorcas's next question. She says, do you think Dr. Talos could be Baldander's son? And Severian thinks that's ridiculous. But Dorcas, with her typical intuitive insight, says that's how they act, like a slow-thinking, hard-working father with his brilliant, erratic son. Yeah. And yeah. she's right. Talos yeah. gave birth in a sense, <laughs> or at least helped create. Yeah. 
yeah. brought Talus into the world. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So now at this point, Severian points out that the picture Rudison showed Severian in the green room was no more identifiable as the green room than any other garden would have looked like it. And I think that's supposed to be analogous to Talos calling uh, Severian death. In other words, the picture, like the slur, did resemble the green room, but only in that one was a garden and the other was an image of a garden, which is to say that the picture was a personification of the green room, but not the only personification of a green room. And Rudison only said it was a picture of a green room in order to manipulate Severian in, into the picture room on the opposite wall. But here we get finally something else. As they are walking back to the tents, Severian thinks, is Dr. Talos calling Dorcas innocence the same kind of metaphor, same kind of accuracy, inaccuracy as calling Severian death or Rudison calling the picture the green room? And there's a lot of ways to take this. Obviously, in a sense, Dorcas is not innocent. She's been a wife, a mother. She's had tragedy. She's been dead. Mm -hmm. But again, if we were to take everything she says about Talos literally, is Talos calling her innocence a kind of manipulation, either for her or for Severian? Yeah, and I, I kind of think it is. like Because mm -hmm. in this case, there's false innocence. And false mm -hmm. innocence can be simplicity. Because I think what we should see is instead that she's innocent because her memory is gone and she's disconnected and doesn't see the whole context of everything. Um, but that's not a good kind of innocence. <laughs> that's, that's, that's really, that's a really kind of dangerous and ultimately, especially for her tragic innocence, because she doesn't know how to live, how to fit into what all is going on here. Right, so, right. yeah. So it's, it's tearing her apart. Obviously. Yeah. 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 Um, whereas instead what he should be calling her is, you know, really just good. <laughs> like that's, that's more what she is. She's innocent and, and she's innocent in the sense of she hopes for the best. She wishes for the best, but not because she's stupid. Like we, we find out it's more just, that's, that's part of her good qualities that she's intuitively able to catch on to what people are really doing and what's important right. to them and, and things like that. And that's a good thing, but it's, um, but you could see that as, oh, she's so innocent. She's so trusting of Severian, you know, because <laughs> she just doesn't know any better. But right. that's really not what it is. There's something else. So, yeah. So in that case, calling her innocence would be simplifying and, and insulting. A little bit. Yeah, maybe so. Yeah. So. Yeah. Oh, one other thing. Uh, Talos calls Severian and Dorcas death and innocence. But the missionary in the jungle garden called Severian and Agia death and the maiden, which is essentially the same archetype which leads to questions about Agia, about who she is in this story and her backstory and how are Dorcas and Agia equivalent. Dorcas is called innocence, but there's you know only partial truth to that. Agia is called the maiden, which seems very unlikely, but is it possible that Agia fits the bill of innocence better than Dorcas in some sense? Again, all roads keep leading me back to Agia and then Every road leaves in every direction from Agia. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and the only thing I can think about Death and the Maiden is that Death and the Maiden as a sort of traditional symbol is much more about sex and a, a, an erotic side to it and how death and sex are often caught up together. But actually, that's a lot more like what I think 
Dorcas and Severian might have in a more mature kind of way of looking at the symbol, because that's really, that's what Severian's death is ultimately supposed to come to do is to create, you know, generation and more stuff and, and making the world better. Um, Whereas just calling it sort of death and innocence or looking at just the sort of negative version of that symbol um, just sees it as sort of a scary thing and a stupid thing. Um, You know, death is scary. Innocence is stupid. And you kind of leave it at that. Whereas I think really death and the maiden is much more about this sort of complicated, you know, birth within death. And, and when you combine sex with that, there's some danger there, but also there's the possibility of creating new things. And it's a much more complicated symbol. So, um, yeah, so I think that's intentionally there. And I think it fits with that idea of, well, oh, Talus is simplifying things and, mm-hmm. and he's, he's personifying and simplifying it. Whereas the real death in the maiden symbol can have a whole lot more going on mm-hmm. and does historically. So, I don't know. I don't know, Craig. I feel like it's we've... a lot to lay out, but and, and there'd be a lot there, and and it's sort of intuitive rather than necessarily right there in the text. But I mean, death and the maiden. When um, oh shoot, when when the missionary sees him and calls mm-hmm. him death and the maiden. I mean, he's a he's a pretty keyed in guy, right? Who knows his history and knows what he had wanted to. He's an artist, know, knows right? He, he knows yeah, about and, the archetype, right? Yeah, and knows all about. I think seems to be a lot more about how symbols work and he's more keyed into how the story is being told by um, the indigenous guy there and how that is related to this. So he's smart. He kind of has a much broader awareness of how symbols and metaphors seem to work. And that gives him some insight into what's going on. It seems to me like here, but here the way she's depicting Talos, it's much more simplifying and making simplistic and mm-hmm. really not understanding larger contexts of symbols. Or not even caring about larger Or not context. even caring about them, yeah. All right. Well, I don't know. I, you know, I feel like this, I, I feel like this discussion has brought more shadows than light. <laughs> and maybe, you know, I don't know. I, it, it's frustrating. I feel like there's a lot there, but I don't know exactly what it is. Yeah. And if someone, I, if someone were to argue that I've, I've just made a big deal or we have made a big deal. If someone were to argue that we've just made a big deal out of something that well, is fairly straight, simple and straightforward, I, they would, they would be on solid ground. Well, I don't know. Cause I feel like having come through it now, and especially since the, the title of the chapter is personifications. And we, again, get so much talk about sort of how symbols can be too simple. And that's what Dorcas and Severian talk about, right? They talked mm-hmm. about that in the last book. They're talking about it here again. And I think it really is the details we could argue about different ways, but really in the end, what the chapter does is says, Hey, there are things that are symbolic. There are personifications like mm-hmm. this. Those can be too simple. And you can be right about calling something death, but you can be totally wrong by not understanding how sort of intricate and complicated a symbol can be. And I think that really works in this book, which is, of course, half an allegory because it's all about, you know, bringing a new son and Severian is death and a torturer, but he's going to, you know, go through this process with all these symbols of rebirth and (laughs) what's going on. So, I mean, the book is about symbols, too. Um, yeah, that's true. And, I mean, it's, and, and this so, book is about symbols. And in a lot of ways, maybe what this is doing is kind of like a cautionary thing of Wolf saying, you know, don't get too simplistic about it. It's not as easy as, oh, yeah, Severian's a Christ figure. 
yeah. story done. You know, it's no, there's, there's all kinds of stuff about, okay, what does it mean to go through that? What, are, how right. does that affect the world? How would you interpret it when you're going through that process? All kinds of things that make it more complicated and frankly, more meaningful too. Yeah. And we'll also, you know, everything that is said and done in this uh, book, it seems like more, more often than not, is ironic. It's the opposite. The meaning is opposite of what is clearly written. And, uh, you know, I was talking about to someone uh, this last week about how it's very, it says that the autark uh, refused to allow women to be uh, torturers because he saw how often they went beyond his decrees. And so the idea behind that is, oh, well, what are you saying? You're saying women can't be torturers? Are you saying that women, that they're too frail or, 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 or they're, they're too evil. And no, actually, because, you know, Severian's going to commit that same act by mm-hmm. the time he gets to chapter 13. Yep. And so uh, everything in here is ironic. And there's a surface literal meaning, but the actual meaning of what's going on is the opposite of what is often said. And um, that's kind of the way it is with symbols. Yeah, I might go in a slightly different way that at least with Wolf, it's not that the the meaning is the opposite. It's that the meaning is a whole lot more complicated than what you expected. It may start to look the opposite, but it also goes in and it sort of transforms things. In fact, maybe instead of ironic, maybe we we could call it dialectical if you want to be really complicated and and cool and and use that fun word that you got to think through the logic of how the symbols work. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> but I yeah. mean, yeah, but I think it's not as simple as, you know, a sort of postmodern, you know, oh, I say one thing, but I undercut it with the opposite. And so you can never tell what's really true because. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Listen. There's it's there's definitely truth in here. This thing. is not yeah. postmodern. It's modernist. But, but you know, Severian, Severian tells the truth often by saying or, or even believing the very opposite of what he says. And, mm-hmm. and of course, Often even that meaning is going to be taken in, in an entirely different direction before we're done. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. meanings, meanings, uh, symbols have more than one meaning. So that's, that's it's freaking complicated. True. That's what it is. But that's yeah. a good thing. That makes it, yeah. that makes it worthwhile. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure where we're going with this. Uh, this I'm going to be glad when we get to sort of the lictor as I mentioned to you off mic about just not so long ago, when it's just a lot of people doing things <laughs> and that's yeah. trying to figure out what is happening at the plot level. Well, and first we have to move through a whole lot more personifications here. Yeah. Quickly. <laughs> so to, the, all of these, this stuff of where we have to ask, okay, they say this. And I believe that there is a reason why they Wolf has them positioned here saying these things. And I don't know what it is. I, I have a sense, you know, there's a conversation going on off the off screen that I just can't quite make out. And that I feel like that with this chapter yeah. a lot. Yeah. And I feel like too, one thing it may be doing is if it is a kind of warning of saying, you know, any kind of overly simplistic personification like Talos gives is wrong. Well, what are we about to get in two chapters? Like yeah. A huge <laughs> allegorical personification story, right? Yes. Which yeah. you yeah. have to then decide, okay, am I going to say that this is something I can just straightforwardly decode or is it more complicated in that it's telling us the truth, but, but the real story is a little bit more complicated. So, yeah. um, 
I don't know. We'll have to get through that. So, but I, oh, I think. Yeah. <laughs> that's another yeah. thing. I'll be, I'm really relieved when we get past the play. I'm going to be. Yeah. That's, 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 has caused me <laughs> no end of anxiety. <laughs> so I bet that you have more to say about this chapter than we've said, because I know that there is more than we've said. And probably a lot we said that's wrong. So I certainly hope that, you know, reach out to us with your ideas and your other comments, your thoughts, your corrections and complaints, and you know, bring it to us on the Facebook group or on the subreddit or the Twitter or YouTube or Instagram or email or the Patreon site. You know, uh, we just uh, set up that uh, Slack channel for, for master uh, patrons and those people, <laughs> they're really making a lot, lot of use. Yeah, the, the place has become, uh, you know, a meme generator. And uh, it's, <laughs> it's yeah, there, there's no telling what they'll talk about there. So maybe th surely they'll talk about something there about what we're talking about now. And it'll undoubtedly be illuminating. But anyway, you can find out how to do all those things on the show notes. You leave a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your wolf-reading friends. And, you know, until you hear from us next, may the Moira favor you. And don't over-personify yourself. <laughs> How many kinds of sweet flowers grow in an English country garden? I'll tell you now of some that I know, and those I miss you'll surely pardon. Daffodil hearties and flocks, meadow sweet and lady sparks, gentine lupin and tall hollyhocks, roses, foxgloves, snowdrops, forget me nots in an English country garden. In an English country garden. How many songbirds fly to and fro through our English country garden? I'll tell you now of some that I know, and those I miss you'll surely pardon. Bobolink, cuckoo, and quail, tanger, and cardinal, bluebird, lark, thrush, and nightingale. There is joy in the spring when the birds begin to sing in an English country garden. In an English country garden. Frug also liked our, our blooper section at the end where we went on and on and on talking about Tolkien. So Yeah, I, I threw that in there because I didn't know if people would care or not. I'm like, this is yeah. not about Wolf. We had this like... And yet it's like, so cool. It, I, I get know, I think bored so. I with think... Wolf. Sometimes we'll be talking, we're like, we got to talk about something other than this dang Wolf guy. Yeah. Like, yeah, there'll be some... Well, we, we really do. People don't... We don't put it in because it's off topic. But, you know, <laughs> we're, we're often talking about whatever the latest book controversy on Twitter is. And, yeah. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, we got for years, we, we would talk on Facebook about, you know, boring politics stuff. But now mostly yeah. when we talk face to face it's, uh, through, via these two microphones, uh, you know, we talk about interesting things. So, yes, yes. is he actually told to... he's he's owed this coin? Um, I can go look. We should probably look. That. That's a good question. I had the I had the uh, booster shot today, yesterday. So. It's I, I got I, I I didn't get Moderna this time I got Pfizer and I, it's giving it's it's I'm not suffering like I did for Moderna but I have had indigestion all day and I blame the 
<laughs> I blame my new antibodies. So so. I've had some kind of allergy thing that won't go away for yeah. weeks. Anymore. Well, it is the season. Yeah, I know. One reason it took longer to edit this time was so much sniffling in the chapter. My allergies are killing me. And I don't, I'm not even going to bother saying that. They, they cut that. Okay. Um, are we recording? Let's make sure. Yes, we are recording. And this up. Okay. All right. Shall we? Yes, go. I forget what I was, was going for here. <laughs> the next, I think the, the next part of this is that, where did I put it? What have I done with my, I'm trying to read this in a weird, okay, let's, I'm, hold on. Let me just open the word file and something separate. Do we want to give a tease? For- uh, no, no, no tease. Okay. They don't, we, we were, we've spoiled enough. We all can't right. hold their hands all, to, all day long. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a mouth. Um, wheelbarrow meaning, let me look up wheelbarrow etymology. I think I'm right about this. Old <laughs> English, uh, Old English, wheel, um, source what? of the... Or a castrated blah, 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 pig. Blah, blah. <laughs> oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> Let me say this again because I don't think I said it. I think it, it doesn't ring in my head, so I know I didn't say it right. Being, being you know, with, try again. No, the, the entrance of the... Well, Entrance with the weapon, anything? I'm trying to think. I don't, yeah. I'm, I'm, I don't have anything really to, to yeah. yeah, yeah, just, I still did the whole inhumy. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Not here. But, yeah. And it's based basically uh, on its kind of curved shape. Like, a, I, I think a barrel, I have to look it up before I say something stupid. I'll have to rewrite. Hold on. Auditioning new ad readers. Thank you, Gothic Garden Fixtures, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. <laughs>